0: Well, I hate to say it, but Gentleman Ghost, Grundy, and the rest really pulled this party off.
1: Yeah, who would have thought a couple of dead guys and some ghouls could actually make something like this work?
0: Nice job, Grundy. Great costume, too. Hulk smash, huh? What you talking about, Franklin? Grundy ain't got no costume. Grundy's just feeling bad at guacamole and ate his way out.
1: Okay, then. Oh, some more guests.
0: I'll get it.
2: Rob, you made it. The creature, all right. Yeah, instead of running, I decided to swim from Jersey to go with the costume. Wow, that's impressive. Hey, guys. Nice costume, Cindy. Very hot.
1: Why, thanks, Shag. I guess you're the werewolf?
2: Eh, kinda. I'm the Shaggy Florida Man.
0: That last part is truly terrifying.
2: There's a creepy old house Out in the hills A domicile of weirdness Horror and thrills Where you never Have to wait in line It's the house Of Franklin Stein, A strange couple there are your hosts? They talk of comics and movies with monsters and ghosts. of peculiar place where the sun doesn't shine. It's the house of Frankenstein. Hello and welcome
0: to episode 100 of Supermace, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm Chris, and I'm Cindy. And Cindy and I are having a 100th anniversary episode party, as you heard, but we've stepped away from the festivities for a bit to take a look at a modern horror classic that was a huge film in our generation's childhood and teenage years, Wes Craven's original Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: The movie spawned a ton of sequels, a couple of reboots, and gave the world a new horror icon in Freddy Krueger.
0: So let's leave the backwoods of Kentucky for a bit and head down Elm Street, shall we? A Nightmare on Elm Street was released on November 16th, 1984. So very close. So close, like two weeks later. Come on, people. Why not? Why not <laughs> put it out two weeks earlier? I don't know. The way these movies were made, they probably didn't have it done on Halloween. Yeah,
1: probably so. Uh
0: It was written and directed by Wes Craven, uh, with music by Charles Bernstein. In the cast, you had John Saxon as Lieutenant Thompson, Ronnie Blakely as Marge Thompson, Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thompson, Amanda Weiss as Tina Gray. Nick Corey, now known as Hazel Garcia, as Rod Lane. Johnny Depp as Glenn Lance. Charles Fleischer as Dr. King. Joseph Whip as Sergeant Parker. Lynn Shea as a teacher. Joe Unger as Sergeant Garcia. Ed Call as Mr. Lance. Sandy Lipton as Mrs. Lance. Donna Woodrum as Tina's mom. And Robert England as Fred Krueger.
1: Yes, Fred, not Freddy. Yeah, Fred.
0: that's right.
3: The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming
4: to get them.
5: There's something out there, isn't
4: there? We just
5: see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. The There's a coroner got to say. It's has the jaw and puking since he saw it.
2: No! Oh!
3: She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Yeah! No one will survive. Ah! craven director of the hills have eyes and last house on the left a new masterpiece in fantasy terror nightmare on elm street
1: tina gray is in the middle of a nightmare where she is being chased by a disfigured man in a red and green sweater and rumpled fedora hat the man wears a glove with four knives attached to the fingers and scrapes them along the walls of the industrial setting he stalks tina through Tina awakens in bed, but finds she has slashes in her nightgown. The next day, she tells her friend Nancy Thompson and Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn Lance, about the dream. The trio's discussion about the dream is interrupted by Tina's rough, off-again, on-again boyfriend, Rod, as they head into school. Later that night, Tina invites Nancy and Glenn in for a sleepover while her mom is out of town. Tina continues to be haunted by the dream, and while discussing it, Nancy realizes she, too, dreamed about the man in a dirty red and green sweater. The trio are spooked by the arrival of Rod, who is insistent about some alone time with Tina. Before the couple head off to the bedroom, Tina asks Nancy and Glenn to stick around.
0: While Tina and Rod do the deed, Nancy and Glenn sleep in separate rooms. The crucifix above Nancy's head falls off the wall, just as it had done the night before while Tina slept. Something living pushes the wall out, trying to escape, but Nancy only barely notices Before falling to sleep, Rod mentions he had a nightmare as well, but doesn't elaborate. Tina then hears rocks being thrown at her window and goes outside to investigate. The man in the red and green sweater reappears and attacks her. Her screams awaken Rod, who pulls the covers down to see Tina writhing about, as if wrestling with an invisible attacker. Four slashes appear on her chest as she begins to bleed everywhere. Her body floats into the air as she writhes and screams for help. She is dragged along the wall and the ceiling until finally her lifeless body drops to the bed and then the floor below. Nancy and Glenn bust into the room to find the bloody mess in Tina's body, an open window, and no Rod.
1: Later at the police station, Nancy's father, Lieutenant Thompson, questions Nancy and her mother Marge on why Nancy was over at a girl's house with two boys. Nancy tells them about Tina's nightmare and that she believes someone was out to kill her, but of course her parents only suspect Rod. The next day, Marge tries to convince Nancy to stay home from school, but Nancy feels school is the only thing that will help her through the day. Walking there, she is grabbed by Rod, who tries to convince her he didn't kill Tina. The police arrive, and after a brief chase, Rob is apprehended. Lieutenant Thompson had been following Nancy in the hopes that he would make contact.
0: At school, Nancy begins to nod off and sees Tina in a body bag, summoning her down the hallway and into a boiler room. There she is confronted by the killer, but as he approaches, Nancy realizes she's dreaming and sticks her arm against one of the hot steam pipes. Nancy awakens in the classroom, screaming in pain, but the burn mark on her arm is real. Nancy visits Rod in jail and learns that he had the same dream about the man with knives for fingers the night before. That night, Nancy sings a local nursery rhyme that Tina had mentioned as she relaxes in the tub. Despite her mother's warning about the dangers of falling asleep and drowning in the bath, Nancy does indeed fall asleep and is pulled underwater by the gloved killer. She manages to escape but realizes she must stay awake and takes some caffeine pills to help her do so.
1: Glenn, who lives across the street, climbs up to Nancy's window to check on her. She asks Glenn to stand guard while she goes looking for someone. She walks to the police station and watches through the window as the killer walks through the bars of Rod's cell and approaches him. Nancy calls for Glenn and the killer notices her. Nancy hears Tina call to her and turns to see her again in the body bag, this time with centipedes crawling out of her mouth and snakes at her feet. Nancy runs towards home and is chased by the killer, who identifies himself as Freddy. As Nancy calls out for Glenn, she climbs the stairs to her house, which have turned into a wet, sticky substance that she can barely walk through. In her room, she looks in her mirror and tells herself this is all a dream, but Freddy bursts through the mirror and tackles her. He moves in for the kill, but an alarm clock sounds, and Nancy awakens in her bed. Glenn finally wakes up, too, and Nancy gives him grief for being a horrible wingman.
0: Nancy and Glenn head down to the police station and ask to see Rod. Lieutenant Thompson is reluctant, but Nancy convinces him to check in on Rod. Inside his cell, Rod's sheets begin to move, wrapping around his neck. As he awakens, they drag him across the cell and move toward the window. Lieutenant Thompson, Nancy, and Glenn arrive just in time to see Rod hanged to death. At Rod's funeral, Nancy tells her dad the real killer is out there. When Nancy describes him, her parents both look startled.
1: Marge takes Nancy to an institute that studies sleep disorders where her sleep patterns can be monitored. She reluctantly agrees to be put under, but the doctor and her mother soon see that this was a bad mistake. Nancy begins to convulse and writhe as the monitor's readings go off the chart. Her mother awakens her, but Nancy has a white streak in her hair and mysterious gashes on her arm. Even more surprisingly, Nancy produces a hat from under her sheets. She tells her mother and doctor it belongs to Freddy and that she pulled it out of the dream state with her when she was awakened. Later at home, Nancy overhears her mother talking to her father on the phone about the hat. Marge is sure that all Nancy needs is a good night's sleep. Nancy again tries to convince her mother that someone is after her and the other kids on the street and points out the name written inside the brim of the hat. Fred.
0: Marge tells Nancy that Fred Krueger can't be trying to kill her because she knows for a fact that he's dead. Nancy is incensed that her mother withheld information about the killer from her and chastises her for hiding in a bottle to escape her problems. Marge slaps her daughter in response, but Nancy shatters her liquor bottle and storms out. She meets with Glenn, who admits he is avoiding sleep as well. He tells her about the Balinese method of developing dream skills to change the course of dreams, and then using the experiences to create art and literature in the waking world. Nancy is occupied with a book on improvised booby traps and survival skills. She comes home to find her mother has barred all the doors and windows of their home.
1: Marge then tells Nancy she installed the bars for security. She takes her down to the basement and explains. Fred Krueger was a child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in their neighborhood. He was caught and put on trial but was let off by a technicality due to an improper search warrant. The local parents took matters into their own hands and poured gasoline all over the boiler room where Kruger would take his victims. They set the place on fire and watched him die. Marge reaches into an old coal furnace and pulls out the very glove Kruger used to kill his victims. She assures Nancy he can do no harm because she killed him.
0: Nancy isn't convinced she's safe, so she calls Glenn and asks him to meet her on the porch at midnight. She plans to bring Kruger out of her dream, just like she pulled his hat through. She warns Glenn not to fall asleep in the meantime. Nancy tricks her mom into thinking she's asleep, and then waits at the window to see if Glenn is coming to meet her. Instead, she sees his parents staring at her from the porch. Glenn's father is convinced Nancy is crazy and doesn't want him seeing her anymore. When Nancy finds her mom drinking in the hallway, blocking her escape, she calls Glenn's house. His father rudely dismisses her and then leaves the receiver off the hook. Nancy then hears the phone ring, but on the end is only the scraping sounds of knives against metal. She rips the phone out of the jack, but it rings again anyway. She answers and a familiar voice says, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. The end of the phone turns into a mouth with a long tongue. Nancy smashes the phone, but realizes Glenn is in grave danger.
1: Nancy finds all the doors in her house locked and her drunken mother taunting her that she's determined to, that she stay in and get some sleep. Meanwhile, Glenn is indeed fast asleep in his bed, his smallish television sitting on his lap and his headphones on. Freddie's hand emerges from the bed and pulls him into the mattress. Seconds later, a geyser of blood erupts and sprays his entire room. Mrs. Lance walks in to see the horrified spectacle. The ambulances and police arrive along with Lieutenant Thompson. Nancy calls the Lances home and her father confirms that Glenn is dead. She makes him a proposition. She'll get the killer if he promises to come over in 20 minutes and grab him when she brings him out of her dream. Thompson is incredulous about this and Nancy's insistence that Freddy Krueger is somehow the killer. He patronizingly agrees, just so Nancy will get some sleep.
0: Like a proto-Kevin McAllister, Nancy begins preparing a series of booby traps for Freddy's return to the real world. She puts her mom to bed and Marge admits that Nancy is strong and prepared to face things while she isn't. She does push the bottle away, at least temporarily. Nancy sets her alarm and prepares to go to sleep and into battle. As she dozes off, she thinks about the conversation she and Glenn had about the Balinese dream method. In her dream, she finds another door in her basement, leading to a boiler room. She hears the voices of her dead friends and Freddy taunting her. Kruger attacks and Nancy leads him back to her house. When the countdown launch on her watch begins to sound, she tackles the boogeyman and then awakens in her bed, with Freddie seemingly nowhere to be found. She thinks maybe she is crazy.
1: But of course, he pops up behind her bed, and Nancy clubs him with a coffee pot, then locks him in her room. She screams from one of the windows to the police outside at Glenn's house. Freddie breaks out of her room and gets a rigged sledgehammer to the stomach, which sends him backwards over the stairwell. He then trips over a wire, which activates a bomb Nancy made out of a lamp and some gunpowder. She continues to yell out the broken window for help as she leads Kruger down to the basement. She shatters a large water cooler bottle of gasoline on him and ignites it. Freddie bursts into flames but continues to chase Nancy up the stairs back through her home.
0: Lieutenant Thompson and the police finally arrive and break in the door. Nancy finds flaming footprints heading upstairs and her and her father run up to find Freddy, still aflame, strangling Marge in bed. Nancy hits Freddy with a chair and he falls on top of her mother. Thompson throws a blanket over them and when he pulls it off, all that is left is Marge's charred dead body. It falls into the bed which glows with an eerie light. Lieutenant Thompson is speechless as Nancy asks him if he finally believes her. She tells him to go downstairs and after he leaves the door shuts on its own behind him. She turns her back to the bed knowing Freddie will emerge from it. She tells him she knows that all of this has been a dream. She wants her mother and her friends back and is taking back all the energy that she gave to him. Nancy reaches for the door, and Freddy lunges, and as she turns her back on him, he disappears and screams.
1: Nancy walks outside to the morning sunlight in a heavy fog. Her mother walks out with her and tells her that she is going to stop drinking. Glenn, Tina, and Rod pull up in Glenn's car. Nancy hops in to head off to school. All is right with the world, until the convertible top comes down suddenly, and it's red and green striped and then the windows begin to roll up on their own. The doors lock, and the car rolls off on its own as Nancy screams to her mother. Marge blissfully waves goodbye, ignorant of what is going on, as the car passes three little girls skipping rope, chanting that terrifying nursery rhyme. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Freddy's hand breaks through the small glass window in the front door, grabs Marge, and pulls her inside as she screams.
0: Yes. So, when were you first exposed to the Nightmare on Elm Street series?
1: Actually, it was a lot later because, you know, as you know, my parents were really strict and didn't let me watch stuff. And I actually didn't watch it until I was about probably 13 or 14 years old. So, and we watched three of them all right in a row and rented them. Um, Heather Johnson and I, who was a friend of mine at the time, um, we watched them one night. And while we made pizza. You oh. know, one of those old Chef Boyardee kits. We made pizza and watched those movie, Those three movies. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I actually think I watched the second movie first, and I was younger than you. Uh, of
1: course you were. I, I was like, probably. You're, I love your parents, but good Lord, they were oblivious about what you were well,
0: doing. Well, I lived in town, and there was a video store downtown called K&J Connections, and it. They would rent anything to anybody, basically.
5: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And so they didn't care about renting an R-rated movie to a bunch of kids. Um, So, but my friends had seen the first one Mm -hmm. and the second one had just come out. So this is probably like 1985. So I was like 10 or 11 or something. And so they wanted to rent that. And I'm like, well, I haven't seen the first one. Like, oh, it's okay. It's this guy comes in after your dreams and it's, you know. Like you, you can watch the first one later. So I watched the second one first, and anybody that knows the film series knows that the second one is like the outlier right. in the film series because Freddie possesses this guy, and there's this strangely homoerotic theme in this film that apparently most of the people making it had no idea was there. But now when you watch it, there's no way that you can't get. And,
5: and yeah, I mean,
0: it's like it's 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 not subtext; it's just text. Um, and it's you know that's fine but it's just like a totally different feel right than the other movies and then I saw that was a weird way to be introduced to the series and I I probably went back and saw I think I saw the first one and then uh, I went to the theater and saw the third one the dream warriors Mm -hmm. with my sister and her then boyfriend who became her first husband and uh, we, I went to this theater and saw it, And it just so happened, that was the first time I ever saw a horror film in the theater. And it was thundering and lightning outside.
1: <laughs> and the theater that it was in, you know, it's supposedly very haunted. It's supposed to
0: be very one of the most haunted places in Kentucky. Yeah. The Ross Opera House. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, kind of funny, you know. So, I mean, I lived in that culture. Whenever there was a new Nightmare on the Street that came out after that, we'd rent it. Mm-hmm. We'd watch it. Me and my friends would watch it. And, and uh there there was, you know, there started to be Freddy merchandise and I had I would buy this magazine called Model and Toy Collector that actually came to the newsstand, came to the East Side Pharmacy where I bought all my comics, and they had an article about this Max FX action figure that I knew was like a horror version of Captain Action. It mm-hmm. was a you buy a figure and then you buy the kits, the outfits Fits. to change him. And they had proposed a, you know, a a Dracula, Frankenstein, and uh, Alien, a Xenomorph from Alien, and Freddy Krueger, and the line had gotten canceled because apparently there was a talking Freddy doll that Matchbox, who made Max FX, also made. And the parent groups went nuts because this Talking Freddy was like a cuddly, soft-bodied Freddy doll. Oh, gosh. That, you know, you pulled the string. And I mean, he didn't cuss or anything, but he still talked mm-hmm. in Robert England's voice. And I mean, Freddy's supposed to be a child murderer, or as we'll get into it, a child molester. Right. And then they make a figure of him. And so parents groups got upset. And this figure was like, the Freddy figure was the only Max FX figure that went in production. And it got closed out at places. Mm-hmm. Well, a friend of mine showed up in class and he had the Freddy figure. This was in middle school, but he brought it to school, which was kind of weird. But he brought it to class. I'm like, where did you get that? He's like, oh, I got it at Big Lots. So after we got out of school, I was, my mom was like, we got to go to Big Lots. Please, God, take me to Big Lots. <laughs> and so we went to Big Lots and they just had stacks of these things. I wish I bought two. Right. I bought one. I still got it. I need to get it out. I don't have it on display right now, but. So this Freddy Krueger, so it's got, it's like, that was another thing that like made this like, oh, it was like one of the first like toy collector things yeah. that I went after. Like, oh my God, it's this, and actually I don't think the Freddy Krueger figures that rare because they made they, I guess produced a full run of them. Right. But they just got closed out. They never were in a regular toy store, mm-hmm. regular retail because they, uh, Matchbox was like, we don't want nothing to do with this. Let's, yeah. Let's get rid of it. Uh, so yeah. And that though, the, and the, which is unfortunate because if you look online, there's a really great, the, the guy that created Max FX also created a lot of great toys like color forms. We covered that on, yeah. on supermates a long time ago, Mel Burnkrant, uh, with Brian Heiler. It he was, he was, a it was a guest on early supermates and, uh, we talked about Mel Burnkrant and, um, you can find the whole story about Max FX mm-hmm. on a website he's got, which is great. But getting back to actually the movies. Wes Craven had come up with the idea of the Nightmare on Elm Street story after reading several articles in the L.A. Times about a phenomenon later called Asian Death Syndrome. And over the course of three years, several Southeast Asian refugees who had fled the reign of Pol Pot became plagued with nightmares and refused to sleep afterwards. They would be prescribed sleeping pills but refused to take them. They'd like act like they take them and hide them and mm-hmm. and... They stayed awake drinking coffee. They had hidden coffee pots under their beds and, you know, in their rooms. And when they did finally fall asleep from exhaustion or what have you, they woke up screaming and then died. <laughs> so Ugh. so he merged this idea, which is, you know, I mean, wh- that's tailor-made for a horror film. It's horrible and unfortunate. But, I mean, you know, so obscure tailor-made for a horror film. And he merged merged this with a childhood recollection he had of hearing someone outside his window. And when he, he was about 10 years old, he looked outside down to the street below and he saw a man in a slouched hat who turned and stared at him. And he hid under the window ledge, Wes Craven did for a few minutes and just hoping that guy would go away. And when he got up to look again, the man was still there and he actually like was staring at him and he like moved his head forward. Like say, like, ha! you know, like that to mm. him, made him jump. And, the fact that some guy would, like, go out of his way to scare some little, little kid. Little kid, yeah. That stuck with him, so he became the perfect boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Like, what if something was in this these dreams with these guys? And, you know, that's where Freddy came from. And Craven had had success in the horror genre. He wrote and produced low-budget but popular films like The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. And in 1982, he wrote and directed the big-screen adaptation of DC Swamp Thing which wasn't as successful as anyone had hoped. Uh, Before Nightmare, he made the sequel to The Hills Have Eyes, which was probably a good indicator that Swamp Thing put him in movie jail for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although he did come up with the Nightmare concept while he was working on Swamp Thing. So he said that was the best thing to come out (laughs) of doing Swamp Thing was, was that. Craven shopped the idea around Hollywood for a few years, but was told no one would be interested in the killer haunting your dreams. New Line Cinema had made a few films, but was primarily... A film distributor selling movies primarily to prisons, colleges, and other non-traditional venues. New line head Robert Shea saw the potential, and he and Craven cut a deal to produce the film. There you go. Uh, so we actually see at the beginning Freddie making his glove, which I assume is part of Tina's dream, but could also be seen as a flashback. Right. Uh, Freddie here is not played by Robert England, but FX artist Charles Bellardinelli, because he was the only one who knew how to assemble the glove. Okay, yeah. So they actually, actually we'll get into, there's quite a few scenes in this film where Robert England isn't Freddy, but for these type of reasons. So Craven was looking to give Freddy a signature weapon and he'd been reading up on how the claw of an animal like a bear was the most primordial thing that men feared. So that's where the claw came from. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, much more original than a machete or a chainsaw or, you know, that. Had been done at this yeah. point, you know. So we meet Teen in her dream, but played by Amanda Weiss. She had appeared in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and a year after this, in the movie I remember her best from Better Off Dead, where she played Lane Myers' ex girlfriend Beth. You, did you realize that was her? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was like, okay, yeah. And the, I always think about the scene where they they think they've each got something in their nose, and then they're yeah. like wiping their face, and then they're doing their ears, and all that, you know, that stuff. That's, that's like the one cute scene you get of them, like yeah. when they first meet, cause she's awful to him in that movie. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's also, I mean, let's face it, Lane's being a stalker.
1: Oh you know, yeah. In that movie, so. I won't take no. So, yeah,
0: basically. She's actually been very active ever since this as a character actress, so she's had a, a nice long career. Uh, so that's good. Weiss was 24, but apparently playing 15. I, I never bought that she was 15, but the news report later says she's 15. And
1: considering what she was, I, uh. I know, yeah, yeah,
0: I know, I know. Uh We see her and hear lambs as if lambs are being led to the slaughter. And of course, lambs and sheep are symbols of sleep. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. We never see Freddy's face in this dream. He sneaks up behind her and she wakes up. So, you know, right. obviously they're holding back the reveal of what he looks like. Tina's mom actually thinks, uh, she cut her shirt like that with her fingernails. Of She's course. Like, yeah. If you're going to have dreams like that, you need to cut your fingernails. I mean, like, how sharp could your fingernails be? I know. <laughs> Come on, mom. That's like, I, I don't know. We'll get into that, but it's like, I, I mean, I know Freddy Krueger, we'll just go ahead and say it. Freddy Krueger to them is dead. They watched him burn. Okay. I get that. And the idea of there being some supernatural component to Freddy Krueger, I, I, when like there's literally people are talking about there's like four knives slashes and things. Yes. Who do you know that had a glove with you know? Even you know. if you don't think he's back from the dead, maybe it's a copycat, copycat. or yeah. something. Yeah, it's maybe it's a family member trying to get revenge or something. I don't know. I don't know. Tina's mom seems more concerned with her boyfriend who wants her to come back to bed. You get the impression later that the marriages of some of these folks, especially Nancy's parents were probably destroyed by the parent group killing Freddie, the yeah the conspiracy the the, the, of the, it. The, yeah. the the secrecy of knowing what they did and keeping it under wraps. We see the girls in white jumping ropes singing the nursery rhyme, which you gave us a nice sample of. And I guess maybe that should be our first indication that this is all a dream. Because when we see them they're all in white. It's right before they should be going to school. Yeah. Um it's it's misty the the camera looks misty when you know it's like yeah, not plenty in focus. of
1: Vaseline used on that yeah
0: there's it's not in focus <laughs> yeah it's like it's like a, a close-up of a female on star trek um yeah so maybe that's our first uh indication that uh that this is uh, a dream heather langenkamp's boyfriend actually wrote the nursery rhyme and composer charles bernstein took that notion of the sing-song melody and made it the theme of the film but made it very discordant so it would sound off-key it's it's very effective and memorable. And instantly, yeah. the Nightmare on Elm Street series has a theme. Yes. Even, I mean, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince can rip it off and put it in a the song. They're like, oh, it's Nightmare on Elm Street. Here we meet our heroine Nancy, played by Heather Langenkamp. She had only been in a handful of films before this, but Wes Craven thought she perfectly captured that girl-next-door vibe he was after. Uh, she went on to return in two subsequent nightmare films, one as Nancy and one as herself, which we'll talk about a little bit. Mm-hmm. She also starred in three seasons of the sitcom Just the Ten of Us, which was part of ABC's big TGI Friday block in the late 80s and early 90s, which every kid our age watched. Mm-hmm. It was just what you did. If you didn't have something going on Friday night, you just watched that. So, uh, it was a spinoff of the hit Growing Pains, but after the success of Full House, ABC wanted to have their TGIF Shows produced solely by Full House's Miller Boyette Productions. And they couldn't find a slot for just the 10 of us. So it was canceled after season three, despite having good ratings. Huh. It was one of those cases where, you know, one of those shows that like, it's a hit, but we don't want it. You know, it's just, <laughs> I never will. TV shows would die. Networks would die for a show like that nowadays. Because yes. nobody watches network TV. So, you know, it's like... Mm. Uh, I will, I, you know, I'm going to get punched. I know, but I had oh. a, I had a huge crush on Lang Camp, mostly from that show, more so than the nightmare movies. Right. Uh, because she was a smart brunette who wore big glasses and I most definitely have a type.
1: So <laughs> come here.
0: <laughs> okay. I got kiss instead of smack. That's good. Uh, and I have to mention that Warner Brothers put out a promotional brochure. It was handed out in theaters with Batman 89. You know, obviously came out on June 23rd, 1989. They gave you a a little pamphlet that had Batman merchandise in it. And in that little brochure, there were several WB stars sporting Batman gear. And one was Heather Langenkamp oh, in a okay. very 80s outfit of yellow and black tank top and biker shorts. She was on a bicycle and she had bat symbols and Batman heads all over her. Needless to say, that only enhanced the crush.
1: So. Mm. Well, there you go.
0: <laughs> uh, she still acts on occasion, but her and her husband, FX artist Dave Leroy Anderson, own a FX company, AFX Studios. She got into FX makeup herself for Star Trek Into Darkness, playing Enterprise crew member Mato. And if you look that up, you cannot, you'll cannot, you never know that that's Heather Langenkamp. Okay. It's a total alien makeup. It's You'll never know it's her. She basically looks like Rods from Monsters Incorporated. Oh, okay. she does, yeah, Lazowski. <laughs> well, I, <was> <laughs> I was like, but no, it's it's her. Uh, she produced a documentary on her time on Elm Street called "I Am Nancy" and has directed a few films, including a horror short film a few years ago. So I would be interested to see that "I Am Nancy." Apparently, it's like from her perspective, like you know. And she's like, "Why is everybody crazy about Freddy? I was the hero, you know. You should, you know, I'm the female that kicked his butt. Why, you know, why aren't people celebrating me instead of this monster? You know, right? So she's got a point. So, uh, and it's all, I think, done tongue in cheek. Oh yeah, Uh, yeah. And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't mention this film introduced the world to Johnny Depp. It even says introducing Johnny Depp in the credits. Glenn was intended to be a beefy jock when casting came down to Depp and another actor, Craven's daughter chimed in with the thoughts of millions of others and said, he's dreamy. Mm. And so they're Johnny Depp. So I know Johnny Depp right now, a lot of back and forth about what he did, what he didn't do, what his wife did, what she didn't do. I, I don't know. I can't keep up. I But we're just going to. You know, if I hope Johnny Depp doesn't become a radioactive subject that we can't talk about, like so many other actors have become, because I really like Johnny Depp in a lot of things. Right. Uh, so I hope that stuff's not true, but we'll just at this point, we're not going to get into it because I guess the verdict's still out on all that. Right. Right. So, but you know, we'll just keep trying to imagine Johnny Depp's an all I got. So, uh, maybe he won't be. I don't know. Um, apparently Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Usually not known to be a good guy, was in talks to play Glenn, but wanted too much money. Uh, if not for Sheen's greed, maybe Johnny Depp wouldn't have been the big actor that he was. Cause this right. This was a big break for him, and he does always say this: the guy him to start. Yeah. And he actually does show up for a brief cameo in the sixth Freddy's Dead, the final, the final nightmare. You know, oh, okay. Which is like the I think the worst of those movies, but he's in it.
1: Oh okay. Very,
0: very, very briefly. Okay. And by that point, he was already a pretty big star. He wasn't quite Johnny Depp yet, but he was a bigger star, by the way. okay. Yeah. Uh, Nancy comments, sounds like a real boogeyman. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. So, how is this legend of Freddy so pervasive, but no one knows what it's about just 10 to 15 years after it
1: happened? See, that's what I want to know. How come the, you know, none of the kids know about this
0: but if this is all a dream maybe we shouldn't question this
1: oh true because okay.
0: maybe nancy does know and that's why she's dreaming about all this
1: hmm. i mean
0: we're as we talk about this it, it we're gonna have to like wait, no, wait a minute is this really is this part of the dream or is this is, there's parts obviously there's parts of it where it's supposed to be in a dream but then we're back in the real world but at the end of the movie it was all a dream so, because her friends are all still alive again. So, yeah. So, hmm, yeah. Uh, we then meet Rod, played by, I uh, hope I'm pronouncing his uh, name right, Azu Garcia. He was then going by Nick Corey. He said he went Italian so he could get parts because no one was hiring Latinos back then. Okay. it's very unfortunate. Uh, he's been in a ton of stuff like Predator 2, Traffic, We Were Soldiers, and he was actually had a cameo in Wes Craven's New Nightmare which uh we'll get we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh there's this really dopey scene where yes. Glenn tries to fake out his mom that he's staying with his cousin near the airport and not at Tina's house with two girls. He puts a sound effects tape in that Rod gave him, but in addition to airport sounds, it also has explosions, machine gun fire, etc., but it does help establish that these characters have a bond, you know, they they goofing around, they're having fun yeah. before the slaughter begins, you know, so um Rod shows up and tackles Glenn and then pulls a switchblade on him and I can't say I really like Rod. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm I they didn't do a good job of making me believe that Rod was like friends with them. No. I I mean later you kind of I mean there's a picture of all four of them together. Nancy seems generally upset that Rob is Rod is dead, but I get I the way that And there might be stuff on the cutting room floor or something. But the impression I get is like, you know, Nancy and Tina were friends. Mm -hmm. And Glenn was friends with them. And, of course, Nancy and Glenn are boyfriend and girlfriend. They're all three friends. And then Rod is the guy that Tina is dating that they don't like, don't approve of. But they can't get her to dump him. Mm -hmm. And he just keeps coming around, even though he's bad news. Yeah, That's the thing I get. Mm -hmm. But apparently they're more friends than that. So I don't know. But that's the way it comes across. So this movie does seem to follow the horny teenagers who have sex must die mentality that all eighty slashers did. Well, I mean, actually going back to 78 with Halloween. Uh, Tina and Rod have sex, so they die. Nancy is very chaste and makes Glenn sleep in the other room, and she lives. Of course, Glenn dies, but maybe it's because he really wanted to, you know. (laughs) Do it. Yeah, he did. So maybe that's why. I do like Glenn's line as he is suffering through listening to Tina and Rod get it on. Morality sucks. <laughs> but that might be what got you killed, Glenn. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know. Yep. Yep. Yeah, shoulda. Yeah, should have stayed all nice and and cleaver-esque, you know. Uh Rod asked Tina if she feels better, and I do like her line, Jungle Man Fix Jane, even though it's wrong, it's funny. So <laughs> Yeah. So they, you know, Wes Craven does a good job of making you like, like these characters before he kills them. So yeah, the effect of Freddy pushing through the wall above Nancy's bed is very effective. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's creepy as hell. If you don't count this as all a dream, then I guess Freddy can manipulate some things in the real world.
1: I
2: know.
0: Cause she wasn't asleep.
2: No, you know, uh-uh. so it's
0: like, you know, or she was just nodding off. So. Then Tina goes to check on rocks being thrown at her window by herself. I know it's in her dream. I mean, it's in—it's definitely in a dream. Uh, but why would you do that even in a dream? I mean, you know, i, I don't know. It's because she has to. It's in the plot. Uh, then we finally get to see Freddy's face, although it is obscured in shadow throughout the film. At one time, David Warner was cast as Freddy, and makeup tests were done, but he became unavailable. Of course, David Warner is known or many things he was he was Chancellor Gorkin in, right. in Star Trek 6 he was Jack the Ripper in time and time again mm-hmm. and uh, he's the voice of Rachel Ghoul on Batman animated series right, right. and he's been in a ton of stuff but apparently one time he was going to play Freddy Krueger cuz Craven was looking for an older man so when someone suggested Robert England to him He wasn't interested at first, but then he saw the delight that England had for playing evil, and it reminded him of that creepy guy outside his window.
5: Yeah. So,
0: yeah, so that's how he got the job. England had just come off the hugely successful miniseries B and B, The Final Battle, which we all know Shag loves. And they were big for me when I was a kid, too. Oh, yeah, me too. Huge. Huge huge schoolyard discussion. The oh next yeah, day. about
1: V. Oh yeah. Every
0: time they, you know, the two-parter and then the three-parter that, that was just the big, and then when the TV show came on, nobody cared. But the, the, yeah. mini, the series was like R- yeah. massive. Yeah. It was like, the, I mean, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to say this to dampen the historical significance of what I'm going to mention, but for children, it was the roots of kids. I mean, it was the TV miniseries that everybody was talking about. You know, yeah. roots is what adults were talking about back in the 70s. V was what kids were talking about in the 80s at on the schoolyard, you know. So, he made, you know, and he was the uh, sympathetic alien visitor, Willie, so he right. had a good part in that. So he was a good guy in that, actually. Uh, of course, Freddy made him a horror icon, and he went on to play the role in the Nightmare series and Freddy vs. Jason. He also voiced Felix Faust on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, which we've covered, and the Riddler on The Batman, not to be confused with the new movie, The Batman, but the animated the Batman from the uh, early two thousands, and uh, he's going to be featured in the upcoming season of Stranger Things, which I think is
5: mm.
0: is cool. That you know that that show is set in the eighties, and they do all these tributes to horror films of the time mm. and, and sci fi and horror films, and to give Robert England a good juicy part. That's that's like that's like the guys in the sixties. Like giving Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. parts, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's what that's like. And I think that's great. So I'm glad to see him. And he's a good actor. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely glad. I'd be interested to see what they do with him. I, I don't want to, I've heard what they're doing with him. I don't want to spoil it for people who don't know, but yeah. Uh, you mentioned Freddie's makeup didn't look quite as refined in this one as later films. And, mm-hmm. and you're right. You're right.
1: Of course, I am. Yeah, uh, David. B. Let's record this part and just keep it for posterity. <laughs> that can that can be my new ringtone.
0: Yeah, you need to change your ringtone because it's very annoying.
1: Hey, uh, that's the only reason I pay attention to it.
0: Okay, you can just say you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Uh, David B. Miller created the Freddy design based on playing around with a pepperoni pizza. So see, it ties in. Know. You were, what, ate, ate a made a pizza and watched Nightmare on Elm Street, and then looking at photos of actual burn victims. Uh, he originally envisioned Freddy as an as older when David Warner was thought to be cast, but dropped the old man look when Robert England came aboard. Uh, Kevin Yeager took over the makeup with the second film and added more bone structure and a hook nose. He wanted to go for a male witch look. So,
1: see, I see a lot of similarity. Um, I'm trying to think who you know the Ronald doll. It's a book made by Ronald. Role doll with the witches.
5: Yeah, yeah.
1: The version that came out in eighty one, her witch form is very reminiscent of her and Ferdy Kruger have very reminiscent facial structures and nose and everything. Is that else. Angelica Houston? Yes, thank you. I could not yeah. think of her name, right? That escaped yeah, me for a moment. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he does he's got that classic I mean Robert England's kinda got a pronounced like nose that kinda curves down anyway, mm-hmm. you know. And, he, like, they went, they just exenu, exen, accentuated uh, accentuated that. I couldn't use that word. Yeah. I always thought, and this is just me throwing this out, Robert, if they ever do a movie about, like, he's probably getting too old now, unless it was a later in life thing. But if they ever did a biopic of, like, the Marvel offices, Robert Englund should have played Steve Ditko. Oh. Because there's only a few handful of pictures of Steve Ditko because he didn't like to be photographed and he was pretty much a recluse. But Robert England and Steve Ditko look a lot alike. Okay. And you know, Robert England's a good actor and he definitely can play a strange guy, obviously. So, yeah. you know, so England was known to rip his makeup, makeup off at the end of each day, which gave the makeup guys fits having to find the pieces he discarded as he walked away and figure out what was what. Like, I got an ear and I got a nose and I, you know, yeah. so, so, and there's pictures of him just like ripping it off. What's those guys like? Don't do that. Oh my God. You know. Because, you know, it was all in pieces and they, you know, glued it and stuff. Uh. Craven credited England with a lot of Freddy's success, developing the way the character moved his hands and worked the glove. England has said the heavy glove made his right shoulder slouch, giving him the appearance of a gunslinger, so he went with it. Even though Freddie is less talkative in this one, England instantly owns the role.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, can you imagine anybody else in the role nowadays?
0: Well, I mean, they cast, there was a reboot with Jack, Jackie Haley, who's a good, who's a good actor, but I haven't seen it, but my understanding is they, they, they tried to bring, like, make Freddie scarier and tone back the, the, you know, the quips and things and, and, You know, and yeah, you can argue he gets a little too goofy later. I mean, somebody like he, like they said in that documentary we'll talk about, he became a game show host at one point, basically. But in this one, like, you know, when he's like, "Hey Tina, look at this," and like cuts his fingers Mm -hmm. off just to show her it's like you know squirting everywhere. And you know, I mean, I think the epitome of, and it's in that documentary to say too, and I've always thought that in the Dream Warriors when he takes the girl. She's like looking at the TV and he's like, welcome to primetime, bitch. And like, there's that guy. Into the TV. And Robert England ad-libbed that. It was not in the script.
5: Oh yeah. So, so
0: yeah. So, you know, it's like, he's just, he, he got into it. He brought a lot to that character. So, uh, right off the bat, Freddie stretches his arms to both sides of the alley and scrapes his claws. The effect is kind of weird. Works. It kind of works, but it's a little.
1: Well, you can, I mean, it just screams low budget.
0: Yeah. I
1: mean, you know. It's
0: like, we did, it's like, maybe we shouldn't have tried that. You know, yeah. that's, I don't know. If they'd stayed on it longer, it really wouldn't have worked. And like we said, he cuts his fingers off. There's things like that that, that, like, okay, that's kind of there for gross out, but it also shows something Craven wanted to get across, which goes back to that creepy guy in the alley. Mm-hmm. He, Freddie, likes to tease and taunt people. He enjoys, he just doesn't, he's not like, Uh, you know, Jason and, and Michael who Michael Myers, who just like come up on you and kill you. Now he wants to make you squirm. He he gets off on the fear on freaking you out on doing freaky things and, 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 and terrifying you before he kills you. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's part of his character. One thing I noticed is uh, Robert England's voice is sometimes more like his own and other times seems more manipulated It's less manipulated in this one than in other films when they put the demonic filter like on every line of his, which I was like, yeah, a little
1: much. I kind of
0: like it, just like sounding like him, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you, because he's got a, you know, I mean, maybe a little bit deeper, but he's got a good voice for that. Yeah. Then we get to Freddy's first kill, and it is a doozy. Yeah. The entire bedroom set rotated just like Fred Astaire. Had used in Royal Wedding, of course, for with a different outcome. Yeah. Uh, Amanda Weiss did all of the writhing with no wires, just rolling along the set with a camera fixed to follow. So, I mean, they just basically rolling that thing around. Almost it's, it makes me think of like a, like a lottery thing. Oh, you know, you yeah. You put the balls in there and like oh, it turned yeah, it around. Yeah, yeah. That's what it makes me think of. Yeah. Uh, she became so disoriented when a uh, cut was called. Wes Craven had to jump in to show her she wasn't falling and was on the ground, then he got disoriented. So, um, I guess you can't blame Rod for thinking he'd get blamed for this, but uh, running off certainly didn't no, help. No, uh
5: uh-uh. And the
0: fact that everybody knew he carried a switchblade, that didn't help either. No. Mm. <laughs> we are then introduced to our top-built star, John Saxon. He had already had a long and distinguished career before appearing alongside Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. In the early 70s, he guest-starred On every 70s TV show going...
1: Every show. Every
0: show, including memorable turns on Wonder Woman, where he played a Nazi Mm
1: -hmm. and a
0: $6 million man. His character on the $6 million man achieved action figure immortality in Kenner's toy line, where he was known as Maskatron. It came with a John Saxon mask, and a a Steve Austin mask, and an Oscar Goldman mask. Mm -hmm. And everybody that loves action figures loves Maskatron. Even though I've never owned one, he's really cool. Uh, Prior to this, he appeared in the early slasher Black Christmas it would also feature in Nightmare Three, The Dream Warriors, and New Nightmare. He died just last year of pneumonia at age eighty-three. So yeah. uh, he's you know he had a, a, a very long career. I mean, he was in a lot of B movies and stuff. But he was that guy. He was like the guy that you hired. Like he did a lot of A stuff, but then he also like you hired him to give your B picture some A class. Mm-hmm. You know, because he was a good actor. He was a, actually he was a black belt in karate, mm-hmm. and he's a good action actor and everything. So, yeah. Uh, and I will actually go on, you know, just go ahead and say, I feel like he's really good in this, but I feel like he was a little underutilized in this movie, mm-hmm. you know, myself. But So why is Nancy living with her alcoholic mother and not her stable police officer father?
1: I have a feeling that he didn't fight for custody. He didn't want to, I mean, he wants to be her father, but he didn't want to fool with her. Mm. He likes being, you know, oh, you can come see me every once in a while, you know. He doesn't want to fool with her. His job is his life. Well, that's what I got out of it. I mean, he loves her, but at the same time, he doesn't want to do the day-to-day mundane stuff.
0: And if you got to think, we're jumping ahead here, but if a vigilante group of parents killed Freddy Krueger, and you know, you understand why they did, whether they you know should have or not. They understand why they did. He's a cop. Mm-hmm. So was he like all for it or was he like, you can't do this. And they went and did it.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: he had to help cover it up. Right. So again, does that make him like withdrawn An more withdrawn
1: after the fact? Yeah. Or, you know, is
0: he more withdrawn because of that? And is he accomplice after the fact? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of meat to this story. If you really like stop and think about it. So yeah. Uh, Nancy's mom is played by Ronnie Blakely, who was nominated for an Oscar for a breakout role in Robert Altman's Nashville. She appeared as Mrs. Bob Dylan in the film The Rolling Thunder Review. And I don't really know what that means. So if I got that wrong, ask Rob because I'm sorry, I'm not up on my Bob Dylan films. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. Not that's, I don't mm-hmm. do Pod Dylan, so I don't know, but, uh, so ask Rob. He'll probably be able to tell us. So tell us what's going on with that, Rob. Uh, Marge tells Lieutenant Thompson that Rod, was apparently jealous because he and Tina had a fight. Now, do you think that was a cut scene or something that it didn't really seem like they had had a fight? Other than yeah,
1: but when they walked up, Tina was pissed off at Rod. When they were, you know, when the three of them were together, and Rod walks up, she's like, you know, you can tell that there had been some tension before. And you think about it, this is coming from the mom. So, she's probably hearing news that's two or three days old.
0: Mm, yeah, maybe from Tina's mom. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah, that's true. Because you
1: got to think, that's from the parent perspective. They're not going to know, you know. And I
0: know as parents, like, parents, like, kids will come and tell you something like, well, this happened. And then the parents are like, stay mad about it. Yeah. And then kids, like, get over it. And then get, you know, they're out, like, hanging out the next day. And you're still pissed at the kid. And then sometimes you're even pissed at the parent of the kid. And yeah. it's, you know, it's so it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh So when Rod grabs Nancy, he tells her, don't look at me like I'm an effing fruitcake. I'm warning you. So you can't really blame her dad for rocking up with a gun on him. No,
1: absolutely he threatened her,
0: you know. And then Nancy jumps in the way as he runs. I mean, he, you know... He's got his gun on him. I don't know if he was going to wing him or if he was going to, you know. Yeah. And she jumps he could have accidentally shot his own daughter.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: And, I, you know, which I thought was like, you know, so that just goes to show up. Apparently Nancy really does like Rod. Why we don't know, but Nancy Man. does, you know, they were more friends than it seems like. So, um, Nancy is upset with her dad for having her followed, but you better believe I would have done the same thing just to protect my kid.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: one, well, I wouldn't have let him go to school the next no, day. No. I don't uh-uh. care what had happened. And he was pissed that his wife let her go to school. Yeah. But uh, in the classroom, the teacher is played by Lynn Shea, sister of New Line head Robert Shea. Uh, she appeared in a ton of films, memorably in Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin, which <laughs> there's a part in Kingpin. Oh, my then.
5: gosh. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, we won't get into that. No. Uh, and as Magda, and there's something about Mary, the overly tan neighbor Magda with the yeah. dog, and yeah. you know, exactly.
1: the, the little
0: dog. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but recently has become a horror icon herself in the Insidious film franchise. So she's had a
1: storied l- career,
0: late career like like takeoff, you know, which is like kind of crazy, but that's good. Good for her. Good for her uh the image of tina inside the body bag calling to nancy that is like truly haunting mm-hmm. i mean it's just so creepy and amanda weiss said it was difficult to do because no one wants to be zipped up inside a body bag uh, no. <laughs> you know it's like you're, you're just like no i don't i don't want to be in a body bag
5: no no, uh, no later
0: we see the bag being pulled down the hall by some invisible force as it leaves a trail of blood it's Ugh. that's like actually one of the Scariest parts in this. I mean, like haunting parts in this film. Yes. Really. I mean, it, it really is. Uh, Leslie Hoffman appears as the hall monitor. And after she asks Nancy for her pass, her voice changes to Freddie's, And she says, no running in the hallway. And she's got cuts on her face and the glove on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole time she's wearing a clean version of Freddie's sweater. And you can see that in this one, it does not have green stripes on the sleeves. It's just solid red. Now, in later films, they are red. Uh, they're they're red and green. Uh, so, in this one, they're just solid red. Hoffman, uh, we're talking about here, did stunt work for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. Oh, okay. Because you got some other deep cred. Uh, Freddy cuts himself, and in the gash, we see maggots crawling. I think that was him messing with Nancy like he did with Tina. But I think they also just wanted to make sure they had some good gross-out moments in between the big kills. Uh-huh. So you know, yeah, the effects guys are like, yeah, let's do this. All right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, when Nancy freaks out and the teacher gets her calmed down, she tells her, you, "You'll need a hall pass." Um, this seems like a pretty silly thing to say to a girl who just witnessed her best friend get murdered and then freaked out, but it's honestly something most teachers would say. I think,
1: yeah, yeah, y- falling yeah. back on routine,
0: yeah, because they don't. How do I handle this? Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, the teacher was at least patting Nancy on the back. She walked by her and like patted her on the back, yeah. like as to say it's okay, you know i'm I'm sorry, you know, so uh, when Nancy comes to visit Rod, he finally tells her he saw Freddie in his dreams too. If these kids had just communicated, I don't think no one would have had to die. I know <laughs> It's like uh, we could have had dream Warriors in the first film, yeah, uh, but so why would Nancy be singing the Freddie song in the bathtub? Again, unless this is all part of the dream. Wouldn't she avoid singing a song that made her think of someone coming after her? Even if she didn't know it was related at this it's point. It's on your mind. I guess. It's
1: it's on your mind.
0: I guess, but woof, uh the scene in the bathtub is pretty iconic and of course there's definitely a sexual connotation to Freddie's claw coming up between Nancy's
5: legs. legs yeah. especially
0: when she's naked in a bathtub. So uh that was again an FX guy in the bottomless tub, not Robert England playing Freddie's arm in the yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised, kind of surprised they didn't have Freddie write something in the steam on the mirror. That was
1: a missed opportunity, I think.
0: Yeah, I'll get you, you know. If it had been later, he'd say, I'll get you. You know, yeah. like Freddie's favorite word, you know, so. But um, after Nancy takes her stay awake, which the spelling of that bothers me, S-T-A, and then awake pills.
1: So- I wonder if there was, I mean, I honestly think what happened is there's wasn't a pill on the market that it was spelled correctly. Mm. And they didn't want to get, you know. yeah. So the call, yeah.
0: Probably so, yeah. Um, she's watching, after that, she's watching The Evil Dead on TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wes Craven and Sam Raimi, who of course did the Evil Dead films, had a thing going and Raimi uh, hung Freddy's glove in the work shed in Evil Dead 2.
1: Yeah, so, so there you
0: go. Yeah, nice little bit. And of course, at one point, there was supposed to be talk, there were talks of the sequel to Freddy vs. Jason being Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's like, God, why did you make that? Anyway, Nancy is a Really good girl. Glenn comes in and lays on her bed and she says, if you don't mind, and makes him move. Now that shows some serious restraint. So uh would you have done that if Johnny Depp came to your window? No.
5: I think like, come here.
1: <laughs> it's at least snuggle. <laughs>
0: uh, Nancy looks in the mirror and says, I ain't gonna lie. Well, hey, be honest. Yeah. Yeah, let Heather Langenkamp came okay, in my window, I probably wouldn't either.
1: Hey, I'm, you know.
0: Especially on that Batman outfit. But it's like, I bicycled over. Mm. <laughs> oh, man, I'm too much fun. Uh, Nancy looks in the mirror and says, God, I look 20 years old. And Langenkamp was either 20 or very close to turning 20 when this was filmed, even though she honestly doesn't look 20. No, I mean, she looks really young in this movie. So... Interestingly, Glenn says he hasn't had any bad dreams up to this point. I wonder why that is. I don't know. I mean, to make us think he may escape this, we already know Rod is doomed. I mean, yeah, Rod, yeah. Rod's doomed. Let's face oh, yeah. it. I mean, you know, they're going to kill Rod. He's the bad guy. You know, he's a bad boy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, uh, so Nancy asks Glenn if he's still watching and he answers, yeah, so, but if she was asleep and he was awake, how could she have asked him?
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> Again, it's, but it's, it's part of it's it's part of the overall dream
1: the dream the dream the dream the dream you know yeah, yeah. so
0: that, that again that might be another clue that this is all a dream because it doesn't make any sense the effect of Freddie walking through the bars of rods cell is is very well done uh-huh. things like that sometimes can look cheesy but it really looks good and poor Amanda Weiss had to have fake centipedes in her mouth and snakes at her feet and again be in the body bag so she really got the shaft in this film you know I think she should have got some some has I think she should have got some hazard pay in this yeah. film. Yeah, uh, Langenkamp cut her foot while running from Freddie in the sequence, and you can see her starting to limp here,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: later catch a bandage on her foot as she climbs the gooey stairs.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and those gooey stairs was something that Robert Shay, the producer and head of New Line, was passionate about having had this particular nightmare. So Wes Craven indulged him and actually let him call action and cut on that scene. Apparently, the substance was made of some combination of bisquick and mushroom soup. So, in case you want to make a set of gooey stairs in your house, that's how you can do it. So.
1: <laughs> no thanks.
0: <laughs> For your Halloween party, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, Freddie incriminates himself when he breaks through Nancy's door window. He's talking in Tina's voice and says, Nancy, save me from Freddie." And they have a very unconvincing, off-the-shelf-looking female mask over England's made-up face for some reason when he's, like, saying that. So, yeah. not really sure what they were going for there. It's it, You blink and you'll miss it, and I'm glad they didn't focus, focus on
1: it. Focus on Yeah, make yeah. it a primary thing, primary yeah. scene.
0: Craven said he was the first person to use a breakaway mirror scene, but they have become a horror staple, you know, where somebody comes through a mirror, you know, mm-hmm. like that. And in fact, there's a scene in the Dream Warriors where they come out of the mirrors mm-hmm. that's very similar to this. So, uh, Nancy can older hold her own in a wrestling match with Freddie. So, I mean, that's first. Well,
1: you know, she had been telling Glenn for a long time. <laughs>
0: that's true. She might have had to wrestle Glenn off of her a couple times. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, he slashes her pillow in the dream and feathers fly everywhere. And later, back in the real world, quote unquote, we see a feather float down. So, mm-hmm. another indicator. So I love how pissed off Nancy is with Glenn, though. She calls him a mm-hmm. bastard and a shit. I know. I'm smacks like smacks him in the leg. Like, you shit. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> he deserves it. Oh, I know. He's like, dude, can't you stay awake? And obviously, it's a bite Glenn in the ass. He can't stay awake. So, he's going to, it's going to, Yeah. Should stay awake, Glenn. Uh, so was Rod being strangled in his sleep, and it manifested in the real world too? Or, like we suspected, can Freddy manipulate things in the real world to an extent like this? Or, I ask again, is this just a part of the bigger dream? I
1: don't know. I mean, it's one of those things. You know, they say that ghosts can manipulate physical matter. So, yeah. if you're talking about a poltergeist, same, you know, yeah. same rules apply. So, you know, you could say that. You know, yeah,
0: I mean, those guys like to stack those chairs up in guys. <laughs> you know, but, I mean, but I'm saying, you know, yeah, yeah.
1: So you could use that as well, you know,
0: Rod instantly looks pale and very dead. And the snapping sound effect is very effective when he's ugh. hung. It's like, oh yeah. Uh, Nancy cradles Rod's head in her lap. And like I said, that's another indicator that they were actually tighter mm. than it would seem by Rod's you know, attitude.
1: You can't, when you have a friend group, Especially when you're a teenager, you tend to have that asshole friend that you like even though you know you shouldn't.
0: He's part of the group even though there's part of you that doesn't want him in the group, but he's he's still part of the group. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That sure looks like Tina's mom at Rod's funeral, but if they thought he killed Tina, which the priest pretty much calls out in his sermon, Uh then why would she come to that? You know? I swear that was that actress at the end of the row. I don't know. Dressed in black, so... And when did they have Tina's funeral? Again, is that, you know, dream skipping logical Mm. steps? You know, I don't know. So so Nancy describes Freddy to her parents and they instantly know who she's talking about. Right here is the communication breakdown. You know, how would Nancy know about Freddy unless there was something to this? And Tina died by four knife cuts to her chest. I mean, duh. Mm -hmm. There's some connection to what you guys did to Freddy Krueger here. You know, come on, people. Uh, the doctor at the Sleep Study Center is Charles Fleischer, who is best known as the voice of Roger Rabbit.
5: hmm Yeah,
0: and he was also on, he's been in a lot of things. I remember he was like a recurring bully character on Welcome Back, Cotter, years and years ago. Uh, I think it was a great decision to not show Nancy Dream while at the clinic. Watching it from the outside, we only saw what the doctor and her mom saw, which was enough to alarm them, and it was bold to deny us another Freddy moment, but her coming out with a slashed arm and the hat were enough to paint the picture mm-hmm. so and it probably honestly was a lot cheaper because didn't have to like we don't have to put Robert in the makeup today, and we don't have to do this and do that mm-hmm. and, you know go to a set and all this that her hair going white was a nice touch, but how did the doctors explain the cuts and the hat?
1: hat and they're just they just hand wave it like I'm like what well, uh,
0: uh. she must have had a hat stuffed in her pajamas when she came in, yeah. Uh,
1: uh, uh. <laughs>
0: Uh Whenever I, I know that came after, but when I I think about somebody's hair turning white from fear, I think of that uh, crash test dummy song. Yeah, you know the mm, that song. Yeah, yes, that I know. Song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love how she shoves the doctor when he tries to sedate her. I mean, Nancy's a tough, oh, a tough yeah. chick. I mean, we'll get into that, but she like shoves him across the room. So well, uh, it's like it's like you if you were like. <laughs> Stop by. I was like you can shove somebody. Like I saw you shove that chick at the haunted house that time. <laughs> Poor girl. <laughs> she jumped out at the wrong person. <laughs> Tell the story. Uh, well, we were we were in a haunted house at our college and at our university, and uh, it was in uh, the building that's supposed to be haunted on campus. Yeah. One of the were particularly haunted buildings on campus, the theater building, and uh, they had a pretty good haunted house through there, and. We were running through, like, the basement and mm-hmm. there's these concrete walls and, like, these little alcoves. And this girl, like, made up like a zombie or something, jumped out at you. And you just, like, reacted and just, like, shoved her into the wall and, like, ran <laughs> off. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> but well, she grabbed you, too. Yeah, she and put hands on you. That me. was back when most, nowadays, most haunted houses won't, you know, yeah. They'll if they do grab you, they got to tell you up front, they will grab you. you yeah. Yeah. But most won't, especially with COVID, obviously. But, but, um, you know, back then they didn't care. I mean, yeah. the ones around here, we got, we got hit with things and beat up and everything else.
1: And this was in the late 90s. This was like
0: that. Uh, yeah. Mid 90s. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, you, you shoved that girl. So you went all Nancy on her. <laughs> uh, Nancy asked if her dad had examined the hat and and why didn't he?
1: Exactly. Why
0: didn't he examine the hat? I think they missed the chance to have John Saxon get involved right here. I mean if if they'd shown some scenes with like him like even if he didn't catch up to Nancy, if he was like, you know, doing his own thing in parallel and was a step behind her, it would have given him more to do. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And would have made more sense that why'd you hire John Saxon, you know, to play this character. I mean, it's great that he's in it and he, you know, he obviously got a lot of fans from this and, and there's a lot of, you know, he he made a lot of convention appearances from this as well as, you know, Enter the Dragon and things like that. But it's like, yeah, why didn't they just give John Saxon more to do? I don't know. Um, Fred writes his name in his hat, apparently. So, you know, it's like his, his, his mom, you know, the nun. um, Yeah. She's like, be sure to write your name in your head when you come. Yes, mom. <laughs> it's like Freddy. Krueger. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, we don't we, we don't get into the Freddy's origin in this one that part. But no. Uh, but if you guys don't know, Freddy was the bastard son of a hundred maniacs mm-hmm. that raped a nun. So everything that could be evil, like was like I, you know, Freddy Krueger's origin. But they kept adding on. It was almost like Batman's origin. Oh. You know, well, his uh, his dad was Batman, and uh, his you know he had stopped a gangster who hired Joe Chill to kill him. It was kind of like that. Yeah. It's like, keep adding on, adding on, adding on. And Freddy is called Fred more than Freddy here,
5: mm-hmm.
0: and England is credited as Fred Krueger as we pointed out, although the nursery rhyme says Freddy, and he refers to himself as Freddy a few times in the movie, but he's called Fred Krueger more than Freddy Krueger in this one. So hmm and uh, a guy by the name of Fred Krueger was a schoolmate of Craven's who shared a paper route and bullied him growing up. He also gave the name. That's the ultimate, you know, eh, to you. I know. And, I mean, think about I wonder if that guy was still alive when this, like. came you know, out. Yeah, came or out. his family. Yeah, and his family is like, oh, you know. It's like, didn't you know Wes Craven? You said you knew Wes Craven. And I was like, well, why did he name this Freddy Krueger character after you? And it's like. You know, nowadays he would like sue him. I think yeah for you know, defamation, he's a defamation of the character, yeah. But in uh, the character that um, Wes Craven had in his uh, film The Last House on the Left was named Krug, so you know he's apparently really didn't like this guy.
1: No, he had a mad on for <laughs> he him. He had a mad on for this
0: guy. Uh, Langenkamp said Blakely actually slapped her in one of the takes. It's I don't think it's the take that's in the movie because it doesn't look like she really slapped her, but apparently it, in one take she really slapped her. Ooh. so yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you think her mom's drinking problem was that bad before all this started? She doesn't seem, she seems okay at, at the beginning, but then we see her drinking more and more, so.
1: I wonder, you think about this, why, I mean, yes, he's coming for the kids, but I wonder if he's not coming to the adults, too, Being in injured. their dreams. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, not maybe not as much, but enough that it sets up mm-hmm. some of the poor decisions that the adults are making.
0: Mm, maybe. You know how, you know, if you but have you think his, that would be more of an alarm. Like if, if, if he was coming to her dreams and Nancy's like, I saw Fred Krueger in my dream, wouldn't, I mean, for God's sake, wouldn't that be like, okay, there's something weird going on here. <laughs> but it
1: might've been one of those cases that he was just in their dreams enough to keep them awake, not showing himself just enough to keep them on edge so that they mm. would make poor and decisions. And they honestly
0: probably have nightmares so. about him anyway.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Whether he's in, like, you know, actively chasing them in him or not or whatever. They do a nice job in this film of progressively making Heather Langenkamp look more tired. It's subtle, but she has red bags under her eyes as the movie goes along. When she yells, screw sleep to her mom and breaks her bottle, you can really see it mm-hmm. in that scene. Yeah. So, uh, the later movies are said to be set in Ohio, but clearly here they are in California because there's palm trees all over the place. Uh huh. And we never hear the words Elm Street ever uttered in this film, which is weird. Uh, Craven named it after the main street in the town he used to teach college at, and it's also the street where John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of strange, but, uh, the conversation between Glenn and Nancy on the bridge is a double setup because she, he tells her of the Balinese method of dream skills, which is how Nancy ultimately defeats Freddie, but she is also studying up on booby traps, which of course figures into mm-hmm. the finale too, so. Uh, her and Glenn may be acting a bit too casual considering all they've seen, but maybe he's the last person she can feel normal around. Right. And then also maybe it's just part of that bigger dream. So uh, so if her mom doesn't think Freddie can harm anyone because he's dead, why did she borrow up the house?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Good question, right? She even says not from what, from whom, when she says, why did you do this? So the original intention was for Freddie to be a child molester, not a child killer, but there were some high-profile cases Making national news about child molestation in private schools, and they wanted to avoid seeing as if they were trying to capitalize on that
1: but a child murderer is better
0: yeah, I know that's the part that yeah I mean they're both horrible, but yeah it's it seems it's an odd bit of logic. there is a deleted scene and you can find this on youtube um, it's 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 been on some of the special features and on home movie releases of the film where Marge tells Nancy. That her and all her friends, and she names Glenn, Tina, and Rod, they all once had older siblings that Freddie had killed. Hmm. I'm not sure why they cut that out. It would have added an extra layer of conspiracy and subterfuge to this, but maybe they felt it was too un- too unrealistic that every family would agree to erase their lost children. You know, I mean, because they, yeah. they would have had to have, like, acted like they never existed.
1: Right. No, you know, no, no pictures, no, you know, Yeah, nothing. nothing,
0: nothing. And nobody could have ever, like, oh, well, I remember, you know, I remember your older sister. You know, I don't have an older sister. Oh, yes, you do. You know, yeah. I mean, some busybody somewhere in town or something, you know. I got to mention that the Thompsons have my coveted Santa sleigh and ranger blow mold set in their basement. Um, and you know how much those things go for nowadays.
1: I know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if y'all don't know... Chris has an obsession with blow mold, and well, something he really, really wants is Santa in his sleigh. Or Santa. Santa on
0: a train. The same figure as Santa that they plug into a train or a sleigh. yeah, I got one of the reindeer, but I don't have the sleigh.
1: Yes. So, uh,
0: so a search warrant wasn't signed properly, and this child killer got off. Sounds, sounds about, about right. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, Freddy's origin is actually seen in Freddy vs. Jason, and an episode of the syndicated Freddy's Nightmares anthology series. Which overall isn't very good, but I would like to see that one. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that show. I, I guess, I don't know if that was supposed to be the pilot. I don't know if they aired them out of order, but I don't remember ever seeing that. I think I would have remembered if I'd seen that one. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was basically like a, it was before Tales from the Crypt the TV show, but it was basically like, you know, a, a Twilight Zone a thriller, uh Tales from the Dark Side type show when Freddie was the host, but he also, you know, occasionally was about him, so. Uh, Marge kept the glove in the basement in the stove and if you and, and again, you know, Thompson is a cop, so he was involved in this vigilante justice and hid part of the evidence was hid in his house. Yeah. Because they later say it was on your street, so you get the impression that they all lived in that house and then when they got divorced he went and got an apartment somewhere. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Nancy says she hasn't slept for seven days, but eleven is the record according to Guinness. So just so you just so you know, she's not slept for seven days. Uh, Danny asked when we were watching this, she didn't really watch this, but she come through and, you know, she was working on something on the table while we were watching this. And she said, what is Johnny Depp wearing? Cause he's got this <laughs> midriff top on. Yes. Which, so Danny is like, guys wore midriff tops. And I'm like, yeah, it's the eighties, you know, it's, yeah. it was like a football Jersey cut off. Yeah. Know? So it's, yeah. Uh, Nancy's going to drag Freddie out and have Glenn knock him out. And that's a pretty ballsy plan. I mean, yeah. that's very ballsy. I like her reaction to him asking what he's supposed to hit him with. You're a jock. Use a ball bat or something.
1: Like, duh.
0: <laughs> uh, Glenn just can't stay awake. Nancy emphatically tells him, don't fall asleep. And so he kind of deserves it. He's not taking any of this seriously enough. No. So, you know. Uh, we, meet to, we get to meet Glenn's parents just in time to get to know he has a nice, loving family that's still together. Like yes. the only person apparently that is. So it will hurt more when they kill him in a few minutes.
5: Yeah. You know,
0: that's how horror movies work. Uh, Nancy's got a hidden Mr. Coffee, just like those poor Asian death syndrome victims. So that's Wes Craven pulling directly from that. Uh, it's the 80s, so we have to at least tease nudity. <laughs> when Nancy changes her shirt, Heather Camp keeps her back to the camera, but horny preteens can get a view of some side boob anyway. So, you know, that's... That's just there because that's probably like, I'm not going to do nudity. And they're like, okay, you know, it's yeah. just like, it's like, you know, which is sound, I mean, she was like 1920s, like I did too damn young for that anyway, but you know, it was the eighties. That's, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising that there's not, I don't know if there's really a whole lot of, I, well, I guess there is in some of the sequels.
1: Yeah. Because in the sequels. They,
0: like, that, it's not like usually any of the main characters, but there's in the dreams, there's like these guys see nude women and topless yeah. women and things like that. So
1: yeah because oh, yeah. what do teenage boys dream about?
0: Yeah
1: yeah so
0: I kind of see Mr. Lance's point about Nancy especially since Glenn doesn't seem really bothered by any of this right. So he probably thinks well, she's nuts you know but I, I mean two people have been two of their friends are dead so I don't understand why they're they're not taking this very seriously either apparently so Marge is drinking in the hallway when Nancy tries to leave. she's got vodka hidden everywhere but mm-hmm. you know most
1: alcoholics do yeah, that's right.
0: Uh, the tongue, phone prop, and I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy, is a famous moment. Apparently, Langenkamp wanted to take that prop home, which the FX guys thought was kind of weird. But considering she got into the FX business, maybe it's not so weird. Yeah. So maybe she was just interested in it. But, uh, there's another deleted version of the scene where Nancy says, I'm awake, I'm awake, as if to say this shouldn't be happening because I'm awake. Because mm-hmm. she, in that scene, she is awake. And I agree, unless you go by the, it was all one big dream scenario. That's a pretty weird thing to happen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you just want to smack Marge when she taunts, lock, 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 lock. lock. lock, lock, lock. It's like you just want to walk up, smack her, you yeah. know. So, but of course, one of the most famous scenes is Glenn getting pulled into the bed along with his TV and everything else around him. Nancy seems to know when he dies because she screams out his name, and you really feel bad for her because she can't do anything to help him, no. and she knows,
1: and she's she, locked in.
0: She's locked in. She knows. Glenn's an idiot who won't stay awake. <laughs> so she knows he's doomed. So, and then the bloody volcano out of the bed. They reused the rotating room, but unfortunately, the stunt didn't go so well. The guy pouring the blood got electrified when the water, the colored water, hit the ceiling light. Uh, the blood came out the windows and shorted out the lights, the cords on the ground. Yeah, apparently, it was a complete disaster, but they kept. What they they got everything Mm -hmm. in the shot? Yeah, they
1: got the shot they wanted. The
0: blood rippling down the walls was actually a happy accident because the set tilted away. You can even see like it running off sideways off the lamp. Yeah, and it's and rippling down. That was because the set rotated more than they wanted it to. Mm -hmm. But they kept it in, and it looks cool. It looks Mm -hmm. like like physics just like went out the window. Mm -hmm. So it it works. Adds to it, yeah, yeah. As Corey Musso pointed out recently on Film and Water with uh, Rob where they were talking about the the movie The Stuff, the room, uh, the same room s- set prop was borrowed a year later for that Larry Cohen film, which was a horror satire. And uh, Rob called it Crisis on Infinite Reuse Sets. So, as yeah. <laughs> I mentioned, well, we're going to be talking about that set in just like two weeks. So he's like, oh, it's Crisis on Infinite Reuse Sets. So. Uh scenes of Glenn's body being regurgitated by the bed were shot but not used and I always wondered why the police were 100% certain he was dead if they couldn't find the body you know mm-hmm. so I don't they never show the room like again they just show him standing outside the room going oh my god and they you know that's the line about mm-hmm. the corners and they're throwing up so is his body there or what I I, what's, uh, what's there I don't know Uh, Lieutenant Thompson, when he arrives, waves at Nancy awkwardly, which he has to know Glenn is her boyfriend.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just don't get it. He's He's like, oh, hey, I'm going to go see your dead boyfriend, you know.
0: Yeah. And she calls him and, you know, I know he's a cop and he's seen a lot of stuff, but, you know, he's, you know, he's been hardened by a lot of things, but he, you know, when she calls, he said, yeah, apparently he's dead. So, Way to break it gently there, Pops. Again,
1: that's why the mother got custody. I don't think he wanted it.
0: You know, maybe he's just too emotionally distant or something. I don't know. Uh, the dripping blood seeping through the ceiling from the second floor is creepy. Uh, I feel like this film actually takes a breath and lets the horror seep in, uh, no pun intended, to the real world through the parents, the friends, and things like this it allows the deaths to actually resonate and not just be an obligatory body count kill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like nobody cares about the guys that got, oh, you got your face shoved into a camper because you were screwing, and Jason come up on you. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever stops and it's like, oh my, that was my best friend. And it's, you know, this movie like takes, and I feel like I'm bashing on those movies, but that's why I've always preferred the Nightmare on Elm Street films to those. Mm -hmm. Maybe not the first two Halloween movies, but you know, the the general just slashery basically Friday the 13th. They're fun, don't get me wrong. They're fun. But there's there's just more a little more to these, a little more meat on the bone that you can actually like get invested in the characters mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh Nancy tells her dad Fred Krueger did it, but Thompson keeps saying Fred Krueger is dead. I know that is a fact, but there've been some pretty unexplainable deaths. Krueger's hat was the some hat. The hat. somehow in the in the sleep clinic. Yes, the, the hat. And there's apparently an ocean of blood upstairs coming out of a mattress. So how much weird shit has to happen before you consider the possibility that a crazed murderer coming back from the dead isn't that far-fetched? Yeah. You know.
1: It's like Batman not believing in vampires. Exactly.
0: Exactly. After he's met him. I had had honestly forgotten that Nancy goes all home alone on Freddy. Right, I had too. I totally forgot about that. I mean, I wonder if John Hughes and Chris Columbus saw this film and remembered this. Mm. It makes me wonder. (laughs) Joe Pesci is Freddy Krueger. Marge tells Nancy she faces things, but I think Marge isn't giving herself enough credit because it takes some cojones to go and kill someone, even if it's justified. Right. At one point, she faced stuff. Maybe Uh she couldn't after that, but you know. Took the law on her own hands, so, you know. Uh, Nancy says to prayer, now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Which me and my sister used to say that every night as kids before we went to bed. It's pretty grim if you think about
1: it. <laughs> well, it actually comes from the time of the Black Plague.
0: Oh, yeah. That's, that's right.
1: That's why people said that because there was a chance that you might not when wake you put, up. you know, that's seriously where that came from. Yeah. History lesson for today.
0: The yeah, there you go. It's like a not indentured servitude, but it's that. And it's like, that's, of course, Ring Around the Rosie comes from the Black Blade. Mm-hmm. So, so and which is And already, Ring
1: Around the Rosie, which, you know, was talking about wearing a crucifix all the time. Pocket full of posy. You kept posies in the, your hand so that you could smell that instead of the stench of death.
0: mm Wow.
1: Ashes, ashes, we all fall down, which is obvious. But that's what the lines mean.
0: Yeah. Hmm. We get the repeat of Glenn and Nancy's conversation about the Balinese method, just in case we forgot it, because it's going to be important here in a minute. All the boiler room scenes were apparently shot in the basement of Lincoln Heights Jail in L.A., which was condemned shortly after the film wrapped due to asbestos levels. So it is evil. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Nancy finds a crucifix in her dream, and you think that's going to be part of the resolution because it keeps popping up. Right. But it's really a red herring that the power comes from within the person, not in their faith in this one until the ending botches it. But, yeah. You know, it's like, but uh, Christian elements will come up in other other uh, nightmare movies, especially once Freddie's revealed to be the son of a nun mm-hmm. that was raped. You know. So yeah. Uh, and this is where she tackles him. She says, I got you now. So you would think he'd be saying that, but she's really turned the tables on this guy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really cool. So Freddie really suffers some indignities here. He's cracked over the head with a coffee pot, hit in the stomach with a sledgehammer, knocked backwards over the stairwell, blown up by a gunpowder light bulb bomb, which is really cool. And then set on fire. So it's like, man, Freddie, you're getting your butt whooped. Um, I think in this, in this film, the movie is squarely on Nancy's side.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: In the other movies, as Freddie became more popular and more of an icon and more of a, you know, he became that, you know, fun. He's the fun horror guy because he yeah. says he's fun one liners. I think it became more about, let's see what Freddie can do to these kids, you know. And 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 see what fun thing he's going to say once he kills him, you know. Yeah. And I, so I think it was more on his side, but in this one, it's on Na- the film is on Nancy's side. Uh, stuntman Anthony Cersei uh, won the Stuntman of the Year award for performing the burning Freddie stunt, done all in one take as Freddie climbs the stairs, is knocked down the stairs, climbs them again, etc., and it goes on for ever. Ever, it's very impressive, and apparently it was the longest like burning suit stunt ever up to that point. <sighs> And it looks great too. Oh, it does. I mean, it, it does. looks great. I mean, yeah, he looks a little thicker because he got to have all that a
1: suit. Yeah, but of course. But,
0: I mean, it's barely noticeable. It looks great. Nancy yells and yells for help, and Diphead Sergeant Parker just ignores it at first, despite the fact that Thompson. That's
1: was- what I'm saying. There's literally, you know, 10, 20 people right across the street, and they can't hear her screaming. What well, the tar? Well,
0: she at one point is like, "It's okay, everything's fine." You know, he's like. And she's like, "Get over here, you know, you know, asshole." She calls him assholes and things. <laughs> so, uh, camp is in bare feet, uh, jumping around Freddy's flaming footprints. Once the cops around, arrive, and 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 that looked really dangerous. She already cut her feet once. Yeah. I mean, she's literally like jumping around these these flaming footprints. Uh, you can't tell it, but Flaming Freddy is wrestling with a dummy with a bust of Ronnie Blakely's head on the dummy. So she's not underneath him when mm-hmm. you know, obviously. But it's very effective. And the skeletal body of Marge raises her hand as she's pulled into the void in the bed. So she's like, she's dead, but not dead. So it's Mm. like, which is even creepier. And that's another like really haunting, weird scene. I think they should have just knocked Freddie off of her and not on her. You know, she might not have been burned up so bad. I don't really buy that Lieutenant Thompson would walk off and leave Nancy in that room by herself.
5: Uh-huh. After
0: what they just saw, but they had to let Nancy take care of Freddie on her own. They used the excuse of the other cops talking to him for him to walk off again. That's kind of a waste of John Saxon, and that's the last we see of him in this movie.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it seems like Freddie is already losing power as Nancy lays down the law to him because he like he's just standing there going, and he's like she's like I want my friends back. He's like what you what you know like you know it's it's like she's already sucking away his. Power energy yeah. yeah when he dissipates it kind of looks like the 80s tv show auto man remember that mm, yeah and okay, blue, blue starfield yeah. look yeah it's, it works it looks good uh re the film for the first time in years i was kind of surprised that i didn't really find it scary because i, I don't get me wrong it's very enjoyable but i had told myself over the years that the first film was actually genuinely frightening, like I would be scared rewatching it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, but that's not a condemnation of the movie. No, uh, it's not at all. Maybe Freddie becoming that quipping pop culture icon just reverberates back into this one a little bit enough to make me so familiar with him that he can't like scare me, right? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it 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 might. But what I did take away for this time was how strong a character Nancy was. Mm -hmm. Did you remember her being this strong? No,
1: that kick butt, no. No,
0: I didn't either. And I mean, I've seen this movie and seen this movie, but it's probably been, I think me and Andrew watched it at one point, but it's been many years since I Mm -hmm. watched it. And it's been a long time since I saw it. I mean, I would say she's even more of an ass kicker than Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode was in the first Halloween anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, because she is proactive. She goes after Fred. She
1: go, I mean, she goes into the dream for the purpose of getting him.
0: Yeah. As she sets up booby traps, she tackles this inhuman monster with knives for hands who could, who can warp reality just to pull him out into the real world so she can beat him. And he could have killed her at any moment, but she literally jumps on him. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's, yeah. It's kind of why I, I kind of hate the ending that Bob Shea insisted on. Despite it being kind of fun, I agree with Wes Craven and Heather Langenkamp that they should have just let it end like a happy ending, Mm -hmm. you know, that it was fixed, it was done. Sure, that ending, it helped ensure sequels that Bob Shea asked for, but to me, it cheapens the film overall. Yeah. Because that, oh, they almost got out, but trope was already a trope by then. You know, see the first Friday the 13th film where Jason comes up out of the lake. You know, I mean, that was a, that started, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the hand coming out and Carrie and grabbing the girl, even though it's in her dream, you know, mm-hmm. that, that scare at the end that, no, everything's not okay, you know, that type of stuff. So, uh, cap said she doesn't even understand the ending now and you really can't understand it based on the film. The whole thing was a dream and Nancy is still in the dream, you know, it, Robert England thinks that Nancy had precognitive dreams about what was going to happen before, and with this scene now, the real nightmare begins so what do you what do you think? what do you make of it
1: i I honestly don't know. I mean, you could make the whole um you could make the supposition that maybe she was like you take out the second movie and throw it away, just throw yeah. it away, and what I kind of think is. Nancy was maybe in the psychiatric the uh,
0: psychiatric ward. Psychi-
1: psychiatric ward with Dream Warriors and those two films kind of go together.
0: I haven't watched you know? the Dream Warriors enough to in a while and I need I want to rewatch it now but I, we didn't have time before we did this. But I you know I didn't want it to spill over too much into talking about yeah. it. But it's a direct sequel to this mm-hmm. because Nancy's there she's helping other kids other Elm Street kids who are having the nightmares because mm-hmm. Freddie's coming back. Her dad's in it, John Saxon's in it. I don't, Ronnie Blakely's not in it, I don't believe. And I don't know if they address the fact that her, did her mom die in the Mm. bed? You know, did this, did all this really happen? And how did she get away from Freddie at the end? I mean,
1: you'd need a framing. I think if you could do a framing sequence, then you could say it was a dream with, you know, a framing sequence at the beginning and the end to make, to do that because. Yeah and throw out the second one just throw it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well it doesn't really matter the although they're like they're living in the same house that they lived in or whatever but that's that same house keeps featuring. Yeah. In it but um and then of course the new nightmare that they did, West Craven's new nightmare which came out in 94, that is the meta nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. film where the a de- the real demon that's like Freddy starts, like, actually coming after the people who made the movie. Mm-hmm. And Heather Langen can camp plays herself. And John Saxon plays himself. And Wes Craven plays himself. And it's a really, really great movie. I really like that movie.
1: You know, I have not seen that. You have, too,
0: seen it. We've watched it.
1: I have not.
0: Yes, you have. It
1: might have been on, but I was asleep.
0: You and I went to the theater and saw that movie.
1: Are you sure?
0: <laughs> yes. It came out in 94. You and I saw that movie. Okay. Remember, that is the movie... I know you watched this movie. That is the movie that we let Andrew watch with us when he was about fourteen, or whatever. Maybe a little bit. He might have been a little bit younger. Maybe we shouldn't let him watch it, but we did. We watched it with him because he wanted to watch it. And that's the one where Danny come in sleepwalking.
5: Oh yeah, because okay. the little
0: kid, her son in that movie, yeah. okay, starts okay. being influenced by Freddie, and he's saying all these creepy things yeah. and stuff. And 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 the kid was on the screen like saying like creepy stuff. And Andrew turned around and Danny was standing right behind him, just standing there. Cause she'd come out of bed. Was well, she asleep. was asleep. That's when she, she was, was sleepwalking. sleepwalking. Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, it was probably, yeah, that's probably, yeah, it's probably he's probably 13, 14 because she's like seven or eight or something. Yeah. She was still sleepwalking. There. And he turned around and there she was standing there. And you know, he's like, ah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so I remember,
1: okay, okay. Yeah. That's the one. Okay. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm just saying, I know you've seen this movie, but, but yeah, but, um yeah, it's, it's, that one's good. That one's good. I, my, my, my favourites of this one, I i will enough the ones with Heather Langenkamp, and that's not really the reason. They're they're just better when she's in yeah. them. Because, you know, she's a better character and I think there's something to it that she's part of it that when she's not there, it's not as good. Yeah. It's just like making a, a Halloween movie that Jamie Lee Curtis. They're not as good when she's not in it. So, uh, you know, first one, Dream Warriors and New Nightmare. That, that's the ones. But In this one, there were alternate versions where Freddy was behind the wheel, etc. They shot a lot of different versions before they compromised on this one. And that last bit where Marge is pulled through the door, it's a bit rough looking. I mean, it looks like she's an inflatable doll. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. I know it's a shocker, but of course the creepy girls jumping ropes singing the song is the last thing we see, so that kind of all smooths over that, so... I can't recommend enough the documentary Never Sleep Again. It was produced in 2010. and has just about everyone involved in the entire series interviewed. It's narrated by Langenkamp. It was on one of the streaming services for free for a long time, but you you can rent it. And as of right now, someone has put it up on YouTube. Uh, You know, your mileage may vary if you want to watch it that way, but if you do want to watch it that way, it's out there. I'm just saying it's out there. Uh, Either way, check it out. Even if you're just a passing fan of this series, like like me, really, um, I don't consider myself a diehard fan of the series. I I've, I've watched them all, and and I, you know, I enjoyed them. But uh, the tales of how these films got made, and the rise of Freddy as a horror icon, and the fact that you know, New Line was the house that Freddy built, and they went from like being so like. Having no money to making the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Uh, unfortunately, it got gobbled up by Warner Brothers, and then Bob Shay got kicked out, which is bull. But that's you know Hollywood machine ate him up eventually. But it's it's a great story. So this was fun. I'm glad we covered this, and I got to look at it with fresh eyes for the first time in several years. It was definitely a staple of my adolescence, and I have very fond memories. Ring a bunch of these and marathoning them. So it was it was great to be back to that. On its own, this is a very well-made, well-written, well-acted, and well-directed film. You actually care about mm-hmm. the characters in this one. They aren't just lambs to the slaughter, despite one appearing in the first few minutes. Craven really was a master at this, and it's a shame we lost him so early. Right. So, uh, There was a remake, as we said, of this film in 2010 with Jackie Earl Haley. I never hear much about it now. I think it's kind of already mostly been forgotten. Uh, full, dis- you know, Like I said, I haven't seen it. Uh, that's one of those remakes that really seems unnecessary because this one holds up really, really well. It
1: does, it does. I think
0: this film holds up exceptionally well. It doesn't seem dated. It, It. Uh, you know, and I think part of that is because there, there is this kind of retro horror, maybe things like Stranger Things kind of, you know, because I think because horror has retreated, <laughs> pre into the pre cell phone era so much because the cell phone literally takes so much suspense out of everything Mm -hmm. because people can just instantly call for help and look things up and yeah you know they need to be back like before cell phones and the internet took over uh so that might be part of it but it does it holds up really well Uh, what did you think
1: i mean it's like like you said it's part of our childhood our teenagehood rather you know and it's you know.
0: But did you, think, did you think it held up pretty well?
1: Oh, yeah. The only the only scene that doesn't really hold up is the one where he's putting his arms out in the alleyway. Yeah. That's the only one that I'm just kind of like, oh, you know.
0: There, there is one other thing I forgot to bring up. There is, and I hate to kind of end on this, but there is one little thing where like when Freddy's chasing her, he's like literally like, like I'm going to get you, you know, kind of oh, thing. Yeah. It looks a little goofy there. But other than that, I mean, you know, he's he's pretty frightening in this. I mean, he didn't scare me, scare me, but, you know. Robert England's great. It it just is a fun film. And if you haven't seen it in a long time, I recommend you go back and watch it. We we had a lot of fun with it. We're going to check back in on the party, then head down to the comic crypt for the last time this year. See you then.
3: Welcome to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I'm Rich Chamberlain from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com and kccinephile.com. And I'm Jeff Owens from classichorrors.club. Let's begin with a report from our Sergeant-at-Arms. Vince, are there any housekeeping details today? Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that the jail would be proud of, And the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone, no one within miles. So, no way to call for help. Uh, Thank you for that very thorough report. As you all know, oh, yes, we have a comment. It's time we started. We had better get on with it. Well, we're trying. As you all know, we're recording a new bumper for the podcast. So what testimonials can you give potential listeners? Yes, Al? I hope that as you listen to this, you are among your loved ones. Hmm, interesting feedback, I guess. Vince, what do you think he means by that? So many unexplainable things have happened here. You're not really selling it, guys. Chris, how do you think fans of classic horror from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, will feel after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. In the days to come, you will
5: pray for death.
3: Come on, doesn't anyone have something good to say about the Classic Horrors Club podcast? Yes, Bela. Well... This isn't a very pleasant way to entertain a guest. (laughs) (laughs) At least someone's having fun. Let's adjourn on a high note. Al, would you like to sign us out? This concludes our danse macabre. Eloquent as usual. Thank you. Please join us for the next monthly episode of the Classic Horror's Club Podcast, available where all fine podcasts are found.
0: Well, I think everyone seems to be having a good time.
1: The night's still young. Don't jinx us.
0: Ah, here's some more guests. Hey, it's Jeff Owens and Richard Chamberlain from the Classic Horrors Club podcast. And Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio. You guys made it. Come on in.
3: Uh, thanks, Chris. But we actually didn't know about any party. We just happened to be on our way to a Halloween drive-in triple feature when our car broke down. Yeah, we just wanted a place to stay and wait for the tow service we called. King and Abel's House of Towing, I think it was called.
1: Oh no, not those two.
0: Wait, you guys didn't get invitations? Well, Derek, you must have gotten one. You're in an El Santo costume. Ah, oh,
2: Chris, come on, you know me better than that. El Santo's great and all, but my favorite luchador is Milamascaris, the man of a thousand masks. No worry, I only brought the one mask tonight. Oh,
0: I see. Well, who is in charge of sending the invitations?
2: Gentlemen Ghost.
0: Ghost! You rang? Craddock, did you send out all the invitations? Oh, I may have missed a few here and there. I know I dropped off a bundle at the local cemetery.
2: Oh, here come some of them now.
3: I think we'll just wait in the car. In fact, we might just
0: run to the drive. It can't be far, right? Oh, great, Craddock! zombies are going to run off all our guests.
1: Well, not
2: Derek, apparently. Don't any of these zombies freak you out? <laughs> no, not at all, man. I did a zombie podcast for years. I know how this works. Romero's Law. If we could carry, go for the headshot.
0: Okay, we're back from the party and the comic crypt and we dodged some burned up guy with knives to cut, grab a copy of Justice League of America number one, 154. He looked a little bit like Robert England.
1: Mm, a little so, bit, a little
0: bit. Yeah. So Justice League of America number 154 was cover dated May 1978 and on sale February 2nd, 1978. The cover by Michael Kaluta and Al Milgram shows three of the Justice Leaguers in peril. Superman is frozen in ice. Batman has grown wings and claws and seems to be falling. Green Arrow is being struck with one of his own arrows. Behind the league in colors of orange and red is the skeletal and demonic face of Dr. Destiny, who gloats, Your struggles are in vain, Justice Leaguers, for I am Dr. Destiny. It is my decree. I'll kill you in your dreams. Sounds familiar. A banner up top mm-hmm. says, A double-length chiller starring the world's greatest superheroes. So what did you think of this cover?
1: It really it really draws you in. It, ma- it raises the stakes, you know?
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty creepy. I... I like it more from a distance though, because it is very striking, but on closer inspection, Paluda has that scratchy illustrative style and Milgram's usually got a very thick ink style. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if their work that's quite meshes real oh. well, but, but it, it, you know, it looks good. It, it's very evocative. It's a very evocative cover. It's perfect for Halloween, even though it was released in February, but I really love the coloring on it too. So I don't know who did the colors, but it looks great. Too bad cover colorists are never credited. So too bad. I'll Kill You in Your Dreams is actually the title of this one. So the cover blurb was right. Uh, Jerry Conway was the writer, Dick Dillon the penciler, Frank McLaughlin the inker, Ben Oda the letterer, Jerry Serpey the colorist, and Julius Schwartz was the editor. In our roll call we have Superman, Batman, Black Canary, Green Arrow, Flash, Adam, Eldorado, Black, no, those guys, not those guys. Just stop with the
1: Adam. There you go. <laughs> the ghastly skeletal form of Dr. Destiny drops wax figures of these Justice Leaguers into a hot cauldron. He promises the real heroes will soon die as he exits what appears to be a castle atop an island skyscraper. The next day, in their civilian identities, our heroes arrive at the grand opening of the Gotham Starscraper Hotel. Clark Kent interviews board members Morgan Edge and Bruce Wayne, while physicist Ray Palmer discusses his contributions to the hotel with Barry Allen. Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance arrive for a relaxing weekend, courtesy of Ollie's public relations job and current mayoral candidacy in Star City, but the couple is far from happy and squabbling as usual. With the day going wrong, Oliver suspects a supervillain attack could be next.
0: The hotel patrons enjoy the futuristic conveniences such as robot maids, animatronic servers, and dancing on anti-gravity discs. Barry and Iris Allen turn in for the night while Ray Palmer bids his fiancée Jean Loring adieu until morning. As the leaguers prepare for bed, Dr. Destiny watches them via hidden cameras, waiting for his foes to begin to dream. It doesn't take long as Clark Kent, a.k.a. Superman, I'm sure you guys knew that, but just in case, imagines an encounter with his arch foe Lex Luthor. The Man of Steel manages to stop Luthor from stealing the experimental and dangerous Z-ray weapon. But Luthor uses the device to encase Superman in a solid block of ice. Panicking from the lack of oxygen, Superman uses his heat vision to crack his frozen prison. The resultant explosion kills his pal Jimmy Olsen and several policemen standing by. Superman awakens knowing he could never suffocate, but worried about the prospect of potentially killing his friend or anyone, he'd rather die himself than suffer that.
1: Bruce Wayne dreams he is on standard patrol as Batman, about to bust some thieves. As he swings out his bat rope, he sprouts actual bat wings and apprehends the crooks. The other heroes have similar nightmares. Ray Palmer dreams his Adam costume shrinks faster than he does, strangling him. Barry Allen imagines that his foe, the Trickster, causes him to slip on a banana peel, sending him careening off the earth and into outer space. In Dinah Lance's dream, she accidentally activates Black Canary's sonic scream and brings a building down upon herself. Oliver Queen also suffers a mishap when, as Green Arrow, he fires a magnesium arrow that boomerangs back and explodes in his face, permanently blinding him. The leaguers leave the Starscraper Hotel the following day, all bewildered by their nightmares. The fully automated hotel is left empty until its official opening, save for the cackling figure of Dr. Destiny.
0: Later that day, after returning to Central City, Barry and Iris Allen overhear a radio report about the trickster robbing the Flash Museum. Barry races over as the Flash and finds the trickster employing a large flying cape in addition to his usual anti-grav shoes. The villain throws down what he calls an atomic-powered banana peel, and the flash slips careening off the planet just as he had dreamed the night before. In their apartment in Star City, as they are changing into their fighting uniforms, Green Arrow and Black Canary spot a prowler and chase after him. Canary follows him into a rundown tenement, and as she starts to call out to her partner, she remembers her dream, but she is unable to stop her canary cry from sounding as a ruby-red beam blasts at her throat. sonic cry brings the building down upon her. Renero fares no better, his magnesium arrow circling back at him as the skeletal figure he was chasing blasts it with another beam from the ruby on his cape.
1: In the Batcave, Batman installs a new protective airbag in his Batmobile when he hears of a hostage situation in Gotham. On his way to the crime, he sprouts wings, just as he had in his dream. But this time, it becomes a nightmare when Dr. Destiny blasts him with his beam and the Dark Knight detective loses those wings and begins to fall back to the city streets below. At Ivy University, Ray Palmer is doing further tests on the white dwarf star beam he has constructed. He shrinks down to better investigate the results and finds his atom costume shrinking beyond his body's size, choking him. Superman's dream comes true as well, and when Luther encases him as ice, the man of tomorrow is too worried about the lives of Jimmy and other innocents to free himself.
0: As the ceiling crumbles towards her, Black Canary uses her sonic scream to blast a hole in the floor below using her acrobatic skills to land safely on the ground floor. Although she avoided being crushed by the debris, she's still trapped. That is, until Green Arrow reaches her with his drill arrow. The Emerald Archer explains he pulled out a blackout arrow just in time to save himself from the blinding flash of his magnesium shaft. Canary suspects their dreams coming true must link back to the hotel, and Green Arrow has a good idea of who may be behind it. An old League foe Canary has never met. They agree to signal the other heroes. In the vacuum of space, the Flash is protected by a super-speed aura, but even it has its limits. He uses his momentum to propel himself towards Jupiter, slingshots around its massive gravity, and heads back towards Earth. Falling from the sky, Batman uses his Batmobile remote control to order it to crash into a lamppost. This activates the giant airbag he just installed, which breaks the Cape Crusader's fall. Batman, too, knows who is behind this. Although he does consider rounding it up alone, he calls in the JLA.
1: The atom moves toward his white dwarf projector and the shrink ray cancels out the shrinking mechanism in his own costume, saving himself from strangulation. Meanwhile, Superman flies his frozen body into outer space and melts it off in the center of the sun. On his way back to his adopted planet, Superman realizes there is only one villain who could be behind all of this. The leaguers converge on the Starscraper Hotel to confront an old but changed foe, Dr. Destiny. Destiny relates his past defeats at the hand of the League, the last one which robbed him of his ability to dream. In prison, the effects of this disorder left him with chalky white skin and a skeletal frame, making him look like a living corpse. After being released from prison, he rebuilt his reality-altering weapon, the Materiopticon, and placed it in the ruby clasp he wears on his cloak. He used it to influence the board of directors of the Starscraper Hotel and substituted their designs for his own. Using the Materiopticon, he probed the mind of the Leaguers and learned their identities, luring them to the hotel. There, he monitored their dreams and used his weapon to make them reality. He even impersonated Luther and the Trickster.
0: Destiny now acts to make his dreams reality. He splits into five giant versions of himself and attacks the heroes. He bashes the heroes one by one, killing them all. His mission finally accomplished, Destiny laughs with glee. The Justice Leaguers almost hate to wake him up from his dream. Black Canary taps him on the shoulder, but the puzzle Destiny cannot understand. He knows he killed the Leaguers. His Materiopticon made his dream reality, but the atom grows and rises from the ruby and explains he was in control of the device. Destiny saw exactly what he wanted him to see. Adam leaps away with the ruby, and Black Canary gives Destiny a crushing uppercut.
1: While her hand will be sore, Canary feels vindicated, having felt violated by Destiny infiltrating their dreams. Adam assures her. He won't remember any of that or their identities after he uses the Materiopticon on its creator once more. Green Arrow tries to cheer Canary up by making one of his usual passes at her, which for some reason seems to work. The end. Yeah.
0: We covered the history of Dr. Destiny when we discussed the Justice League episode, Only a Dream, on JLU Cast number 16. So go over there and give that one a listen if you haven't. That's a really good episode of Justice League, and it very much feels like a Nightmare on Elm Street film.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: We pointed that out at the time. Uh, it even has a sing-song angle in that one. And I have to point out that we we struggled yes. with saying Materiopticon. I'm going to cut it out, but
5: yes. we did
0: there and we did here, too. So, Materiopticon.
5: Materiopticon. Yeah. I'm
0: just
5: like, oh, okay. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Materia, da, 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 yeah. Uh, This is the first time. Maliva, Maliva, <laughs> Yeah, <Melvita. laughs> Uh, This is the first time we see Destiny in his skeletal form. And, yes, he predates Skeletor by about four years or so. Because uh-huh. people point out, he looks like Skeletor. Well, he came before Skeletor. Uh, Dick Dillon draws his skull face as almost more pathetic than scary. He looks like he's in constant torture.
5: Uh-huh. And I
0: imagine he is. You know, it's like, ugh. So, he's not, you know, it's like his skin's just all shriveled up and chalky and, yeah, nasty. Were you confused by where Destiny was in the first few pages? Because...
1: mm,
0: Yeah, by the end of the story, you know he's at the Starscraper Hotel, but Dylan shows him leaving a castle atop a more standard building, but it is on an island like Starscraper Hotel, so is this the Materiopticon doing this, or did Dylan just misinterpret the script, or... I don't know. know. Comics. Yeah, comics. I love Dick Dylan, but his hotel looks like... Kind of like the structural version of Homer Simpson's car design. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I don't think that would work that way. Uh, so many things don't work together. I mean, th- this was a one-off design that was going to be mm-hmm. one story, and Dick Dillon has to draw all these characters. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on Dick Dylan, but it's just, yeah, the hotel's kind of, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, not the greatest. But uh we see the Clark Kent's boss at the time, Morgan Edge, is on the board along with Bruce Wayne. You know, Morgan mm-hmm. Edge shows up in everything. You know, so. I applaud that Conway tries to address the differences between Ray Palmer, physicist, and Barry Allen, police scientist. But do you think Ray would have been involved in the hotel design if Doctor Destiny hadn't started manipulating the board? Oh no. You don't think so? Because yeah. it did seem a little weird, like why yeah. they call in a Ray Palmer from Ivy University, yeah. you know. So you do do you think that Dinah is right to be sore at Ollie for the male leaguers not inviting her, Wonder Woman and Hot Girl to the Adams Bachelor Party?
1: Why didn't she just have a party that was the girls for Jean Loring?
0: Because nobody likes Jean Loring because she's nuts.
1: <laughs> was she nuts at this point yet? They'd
0: already done some stories where she did go nuts.
1: Oh, okay. So when
0: Brad Meltzer had her go nuts for real, she kind of.
1: Okay. I was just, you know, yeah, his, yeah the, they, the because they did
0: the search for Jean Loring in like, uh, super team family or something like that. And so yeah, there, there were stories where Jean was a little off her, off her rocker. So yeah. But yeah, there's only like three female members officially of the league at this point, so they could have just invited them and had a a party in general uh-huh. instead of a bachelor party. So yeah, it does, it does go to Ollie being a chauvinist pig, but you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. The hotel features kind of remind me of the Star Wars hotel that's opening at Disney next year and that new Space 220 restaurant at Epcot. It uh-huh. made me think of those things, but you know, it probably didn't cost as much, even though Bruce Wayne was involved, it probably didn't cost as much to go to this hotel. as the Star Wars Hotel, which is like, holy
1: Holy cow. Yeah, we are not doing that. Yeah,
0: no. It's like going on a cruise, but like, you never go anywhere, so it's like, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I do like the integration of sci-fi advanced technology into everyday life in the DCU, because it makes total sense that Star Labs tech and all the alien influence would eventually change the way common people live I mean, in the DCU. It makes sense. So Conway makes a point of showing Ray Palmer and Jean Loring going to separate beds and separate rooms as they comment on the Allens going into one room together. Like, soon we'll be able to do that, darling, you know. Uh But I bet Ollie and Dinah are sharing a bed. They don't
1: comment on it. So it's, you know, just fine.
0: I mean, they show them, but it doesn't really show that they're completely in separate beds. It's certainly implied that they normally Mm -hmm. share an apartment. We'll get to that later, but yeah. I have to point out Luthor's costume is colored wrong throughout this issue. His pants should be green, Okay. but they're both they're the same color as his top. That's a common miscoloring in that, this era. Uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, Dylan or McLaughlin or both draw Jimmy and the cops with the same wavy lines they draw around the dream panel borders. I, Jimmy doesn't seem to have pupils either, so I don't know if this is an error in the scanning. Of the You know, for the digital version, which we read on the DC Universe Infinite app, but I don't think so, so I don't, if you guys have got a print copy, let me know, because I don't have a print copy of this issue. Uh, I'm glad Superman explains that he normally can't suffocate, because, you know, back in the old days, Superman didn't have to, like, have a a space suit or a rebreather on when he went Mm -hmm. into space, so... Uh, His powers killing Jimmy are similar to his nightmare in the Justice League animated episode, though, with Dr. Mm -hmm. Destiny. Remember, he got all big and his heat vision. He, like, crushed Jimmy and his heat vision went crazy. And Yeah. I like the cover Batman just grows wings, not claws on his hands and feet. Bruce tells himself, I'm not Man-Bat. And there's a lot of Man-Bat going around in the Batman stories of this time. I mean, a lot of... Man-Bat references. So, Man-Bat was big in the 70s. You know, that he never was bigger. He was huge in the 70s. Of course, years later, Batman would get Bat wings in the Doug Minch, Kelly Jones, Red Rain, Batman vs. Dracula trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, you know, that's an action figure. that buy always wants to make the vampire Batman with the wings. So. There are two splash pages showing the dreams of Adam and Flash and then one with Green Arrow and Black Canary. I think this is a nice instance of economy, of story, because... These issues of JLA were considered giants. As mm-hmm. They had more story pages, but it works better not to show every dream in detail.
1: Yeah. yeah. Especially
0: as we're going to have to show them getting out of it too. So I do wish that Dick Dillon had taken the opportunity to show Flash's costume coming out of his ring. When That's he's...
1: like your favorite thing. That's my
0: favorite thing. I just love that. I just, you know, as a kid, I, as a kid, I loved it. And I had like some little goofy, like, you know, <laughs> ring out of, down, like out of a gumball machine. And, and I had my Flash underoo shirt in the, mask my mom made me and I would like have it in my hand and I'd like throw it out like it was coming out of my rear. <laughs>
1: You're adorable.
0: <laughs> then mm. I'd run around the house in my flash costume, yeah. So. Oh, oh my <laughs> gosh. you just cute. <laughs> uh, mm. I'm not sure why the trickster has a flying cape other than more dreamlike. Like, he's already got those flying shoes, but you know. Yeah. A so, more. So an atomic powered banana peel. Thoughts? <laughs> Oof. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. Oof.
0: Even for the trickster. I mean, he is the trickster. You know. Yeah. But even for the trickster, that's pretty good. Oof. Yeah. Uh, it's actually not the trickster, though. It's it's Dr. Destiny. I know. And Flash actually slips out into outer space. I was really surprised they went there. I know. I'm like, oh, crap. How's he surviving out in space? <laughs> There's one story where, like, Flash has to run out in outer space, but, like, when him and Superman race one time, but the Guardians, like, set him up, like like, with a... Almost like a green lantern power ring type thing that like protects him out in space, mm-hmm. but it doesn't explain how he's able to use it and with his yellow boots on because he's running on a, a green pathway. And I'm like, he's got on yellow boots and they never explain that in that story. I'm like, ooh.
1: <laughs> and you would think he has to have traction in order to gain ground. Right. So they, they
0: make, they, they, like he's like, it's protected. Yeah, but I'm
1: saying in this story, there's no traction. No, there's points. no traction.
0: No, but if he, he slingshots around Jupiter or whatever, but if he slingshotted around the sun, we you know he would have went back in time.
1: Mm. So. <laughs> yeah, I think you're mixing up Star Trek. Oh, across the stream, sorry. Yeah.
0: Uh So it says we're at Ollie's apartment, but it's above the Pretty Bird flower shop. So I haven't reread a lot of Green Arrow, Black Canary stories lately from the 70s. But like I said, I think it was at least hinted that they were living in sin, you know, mm-hmm. living in an apartment together. But he was a hippie and she was an old cougar before they retconned that, you know, that she oh. was her daughter. So... <laughs> So we see the magne- which
1: is why she puts up with his old ways at this point because he's
0: a young thing and she's an old cougar.
1: Well, because she grew up and she was used to, you know.
0: Oh men being like that yeah. more. Oh, there you go. That's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just so, saying. So we see the magnesium flare arrow go off in front of Green Arrow, and there's no blackout arrow in sight the first time. You know, it's it's. So I'm just going to point that out. I call foul. Uh huh. So. Uh the Batmobile scene here is a late nineteen sixties model that had long been out of use in the comics, the Batman comics, so I'm not sure why I've dylan drew it here, but uh Batman is into having wings. I mean he doesn't seem to be concerned that he just sprouted wings. He's enjoying it.
1: Right. You know. Yeah. Um, what?
0: <laughs> I think I'd be a little freaked out if I sprouted bat wings, but you know, that's just me. Uh, Ray Palmer thinks to himself that there's something in his makeup that allows him to shrink using the white dwarf material without exploding, like everything else that he's pretty much tried, including the statue that he tries the ray on in, in this instance. This goes way back to his first appearance in Showcase number 33. They established this, so... So, how do you draw a skin tight costume getting tighter? That's
1: what I, I mean. I was like, wait a minute, it looks baggy, especially like in the neck area and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, it looks baggy.
0: Yeah, I think they should. I have thought
1: f- they were, at first, I had to go back and reread it because I'm like, they're saying the costume's getting tighter, right? That's what's, you know, and I'm like,
0: yeah. It almost looks in- like he's shrinking inside the costume yeah. instead of the other way around, which, you know, you would be naked, I guess, but, you know, that'd be about it. But yeah, it, it's, yeah. It, I, See,
1: it should have been the fear that he shrank into like, uh, oh heck in Ant Man, yeah, like Ant-Man. Just sh- goes to the molecular level,
0: yeah, like he sh- shrinks beyond, yeah, like recovery, yeah, yeah, it should have been, it could have been something like that, yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's a good point, yeah, I guess he could have just showed it like going further back, like, you know, pulling back on his like cheeks and, you know, yeah. his face and his eye holes like getting bigger, and you know, but I, I don't know, it, it would have been hard to draw, so yeah. Couldn't Superman have just blasted the freezing device before Luthor put it on him if he knew this was like, this is following my dream, you know? Kind of makes you wonder, don't it? Yeah. He has super speed and all that. It's, you know, it's kind of like the capital scene in BBS all over again. <laughs> well let's not go there. I don't ever want to, I never would accuse Jerry Conway of doing that. So let's no. not do that. I've always thought Dick Dillon drew some of the prettiest ladies in comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, not overly sexualized, but very attractive and very capable looking. And I particularly like the black canary shot when she does that cool landing on page. I
1: tried to do that. Nah,
0: you can't land like that. Nah, did you try to do that? Yeah, did.
1: (laughs) I'm like, cause her legs turned in. I'm like, oh hell no, you'd like break your hip off at your joint like a Barbie.
0: (laughs) It looks good though. Did she? I wonder if she did her. She threw her hair back when she did it. She Uh, did her three. What's what's this thing? What (laughs) is that? (laughs) She does it. her wig might fall off. That's a wig, you know. Again, the panel of Ollie putting, pulling the blackout arrow seems to contradict the earlier one. It's like a movie serial, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, they escaped, they jumped out of the car before it went off the cliff. But they didn't in the first version, just in the, the next chapter. Oh. Batman uses a voice activated remote for the Batmobile, just like uh, Michael Keaton did in the 1989 film, so. yeah, And che- Chekhov's airbag goes off. We established that Batman's put an airbag in his car, which airbags were probably, ooh, airbags are new, you know, in yeah. 1978, but. And it's a huge, I mean, it like takes up the whole Batmobile. Oh yeah. It like, it like, it's like a, it's like a raft, like, a, like the size of the car. So yeah. yeah. So Adam's save was also given to us as well. Uh, that's better than the blackout arrow. At least they kind of established the ray was there. You know, yeah. it's, it's not a deus machina. It was, I mean, I guess it is, but it was established deus machina. So yeah. Uh, Superman throws himself into the sun for a change. Yeah. Because we, you know, we all know Superman loves to throw stuff into the sun. Uh-huh. So he threw himself in there. Uh, there's a one-page history dump uh, Wikipedia page showing Dr. Destiny's entire history, plus what he did to set all this up with a large figure of Destiny in the middle of page 30. But it actually works.
1: I'll be honest. I had difficulty following which section was supposed to come next when I was reading it. And I don't know if that had something to do with how it looked to me on the page, and where I'm reading through my bifocals on mm. on that. Mm. But I had difficulty trying to figure out if I was supposed to go from left to right, left to right, or you know, up side, side side.
0: Yeah, you are supposed to go up. Yeah, and this one, you're supposed to go up and down. Yeah. Uh, usually, when they have a large, like the large figure of him separating it, it's usually in a column and then a column. Instead of but I'm just rows. I'm
1: just saying, yeah. you know, it. was yeah, you
0: know, I, I get it. Yeah. Destiny was obviously too excited to notice that he never smashed the Atom when uh-huh. he was smashing everybody. In fact, we never see the Adam uh from when the heroes arrive until he comes out of the Ruby. So that was a nice little touch. I, I like that Adam and Canary take him down. It reminds me a bit of how the Adam and Green Arrow, the Connor Hawk version, defeated Darkseid in that Morrison Porter JLA story back in the nineties, that future like that future uh-huh. where Darkseid took over and Green Arrow actually shoots. He's got some kind of force field around it, but it's got to have, it's it's it lets oxygen in or something. So, you know, Green Arrow shoots an arrow at it, but then the atom, like, you know, shrinks down and goes through it and then gets inside Darkseid's eye and, like, blows up his brain, basically, or something and kills Darkseid. Oh. So that, that that's what it kind of reminded me of.
1: Now, one thing I had a problem with I mean, you established that, you know, Dr. Des- Destiny can't dream, he can't dream, but then they say in here, He's dreaming, he's dreaming, you know, mm. while the whole thing's going on. Well, that's true, that's That's a good point. the language that they use. Mm. They interrupt his dream. Oh, so, that's true, yeah. And they establish that.
0: Well, maybe the Materiopticon allows him to dream.
1: But see, they don't say that. They don't
0: say that, yeah. yeah. That's good. good point, that's good point, yeah. Yeah. Canary's Uppercut Roundhouse is great. Destiny looks like such a dope as she just knocks him straight up in the air. I like that part. Yeah, that was cool. So how do you feel about them having Dinah comment on how she felt violated by the Dream invasion? I mean, was that, did you think that was too much because she's the one woman there? See,
1: I thought that was, you know, they should have, if they weren't trying to play service to the fact of, you know, oh, the woman's the one who feels violated, why wouldn't it have been one of the guys? You know, I mean, it's just like, just because I got boobs doesn't mean that I'm going to necessarily feel more violated than a man when the same thing happened to us. Yeah. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, I guess. Well, I guess. I mean, I guess maybe a man looking in on her dreams might have creeped her out. Then you know, I don't want anybody. I don't yeah, creep yeah, out exactly. my dreams. So yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I kind of. I mean, I think that was probably uh, at the time Jerry Conway felt like you know probably like that was. Progressive.
1: Oh no, I, I mean but now I, it I doesn't
0: read as progressive because it's like, well, she should she shouldn't feel any different than they do. They all were violated, but
1: by the same token, they also let her be the one to knock him out.
0: Yeah, exactly. So they gave know. her the finishing blow. Yeah, and of course, Ollie has to hit on Dinah, and he tells her he'll buy her an egg cream. And I what al- the heck is that? I always have to remind myself what an egg cream is, so I looked it up. An okay. egg cream is a cold beverage consisting of milk, carbonated water, and flavored and flavored syrup. Uh, despite the name, the drink contains neither eggs nor cream. It is prepared by pouring syrup into the glass, adding milk, lightly stirring it with a spoon, then adding, then streaming soda water into the glass, mixing the other ingredients. I've never had one. That
1: does not sound appetizing. And
0: they're not, I don't know of any place around here that even offers one. I think that's more of a, you know, New York. That's a East Coast, upper, you know, northern, Northeast thing, I think. So yeah. What did you think of this story?
1: Overall. I mean, honestly, the best one of the bunch of the four that we've done. Oh, unless so you like
0: the Batman Vampire one better with Ivorn and the.
1: But I'm talking about the the log- logistical side of it.
0: Mm, okay. You know. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I like both of those. I mean, I, I've I've enjoyed all of them. I actually like the X Men story the least. I mean it's kinda I think I do like the Batman story a little bit better than this one. This
1: well, year. I mean they're you know
0: that one's just got a little it's got such a poignant ending, you know. Yeah. It's just yeah. Well but this one,
1: yeah, but, but this you know what fun. I mean. Yeah. This
0: one's fun. I'm I'm always down for satellite jail. But if he had
1: all and then you also also think if Doctor Destiny had all this money to set up all this, why is he tormenting him? <laughs> that is the understand? the question
0: for supervillains of all time. Just take that money and run. And get back, get back at the, and he was legitimately let out of prison. So yeah. he could have, I mean, I know he looks like crap, but you know, it's like.
1: Well, we, and then if nothing else, he's figured out their secret identities, sell them off as, to the highest bidder, to the other villains, let them finish him off.
0: Yeah, there, there you go. And and live off the, sell Proceeds,
1: the, Yeah, sell,
0: sell the Materiopticon, uh, much like the Jim Carrey's Riddler had mm-hmm. in, in Batman Forever, the yeah. thing that you stick on your head and it does, you know, mm-hmm. makes your fantasies come true and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, (laughs) I'm always down for a satellite Justice League story. Jerry Conway wrote the book for years and years, and, in fact, the next issue was my first issue of JLA, so this is my jam. I love Dick Dillon's work, and I think he is greatly underappreciated, although I think that's been changing over the last several years. I think a lot of people have started to kind of figure out, you know, this guy drew the book missing only one issue for 11 or 12 years, and he drew all these characters every issue. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, A hell of a run. Hell of a run. We'll check back in on the party again and then come back to wrap things up.
2: The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint.
0: The year is 1994 or
2: 1944 or maybe 2994. Time is under threat and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis? And how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie in by tie in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Ciscoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember,
0: Legion.
1: Well, other than the zombie invasion, I think things went pretty well.
0: Yeah, I'm just glad Siskoid was able to convince them that the jello made in those brain molds were the real thing. Thanks again, Siskoid.
2: Hey, I'm the Phantom of the Improv, after all. I've worked up for crowds.
0: Well, thanks again. Oh wait, we should really thank this guy, too. Uh, Destiny, sir? Thanks so much for helping us plan this party. You did a great job.
2: I'm not Destiny. It's me, your old pal, PJ Frightful.
1: Oh, it's ryan dressed as dj Horror or whatever
2: yeah that's right i'm ryan just dressed as pj frightful right
0: well um either way thanks for djing tonight we'll just let you get back to work well i think it's about time we put this party and the house of Frankenstein series to bed this year what do you think
1: i think it's time
0: yeah Special thanks to our Patreon supporters for information on how you can support the Fire and Water podcast network. Visit patreoncom podcast. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo, Matt Ryan, Neil Whitney, and Rocket Dan Johnson who specifically support the JLU cast, but we'll continue to thank them here because damn it, we like them and, you know, so you we'll say we've thanked them on the house of on every episode, so thanks again, guys. A huge shout out as always to our friend Terry O'Malley, aka Ward Hill Terry, or Ward Hills Have Eyes Terry, hey, directed by Wes Craven, for the House of Franklin's Time theme. Terry's band Stop Calling Me Frank has a new single, Hard Lovin' Man, which is slated for release in November, which, you know, by the time you listen to this, won't be too far away. Available digitally from Bandcamp and on vinyl from Rumbar Records. Follow the band on their Facebook page. Check out the show notes for more info.
1: We'd like to thank our esteemed party guests for stopping by. Thanks to our fellow network all-stars, Rob Kelly, The Irredeemable Shag, Ryan Daly, and Siskoid for playing along. And a big thank you to Jeff Owens and Richard Chamberlain from the Classic Horrors Club podcast and Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio for dropping in. Be sure to check out their shows on your favorite podcatcher. They cover classic horror films all year long. And our big inspiration for The House of Frankenstein, and I can't recommend their shows enough. Yeah,
0: definitely check, check those guys out. If you're not listening to those shows, you like The House of Frankenstein and not listening to those shows, you're doing yourself a great disservice. Definitely check them out. I actually recorded uh, Monster Kid Radio with Derek on the film Spider Baby, starring Lon Chaney Jr. and Sid Haig, which should be available around the time you hear this, hopefully. So keep an ear out for that. So I will be on Monster Kid Radio. And before we go, a huge thank you to all our listeners over the past 100 episodes. It's been nearly eight years and a lot of format and focus changes. And, of course, we went off and did JLU cast. But we appreciate everyone who listened, whether it was all 100, only the House of Franklin sign episodes, or just this one episode. We greatly appreciate you stopping by and allowing us to hopefully entertain you. There are a lot of great podcasts out there, so anyone who takes the time to listen to us you are, again, just greatly appreciated. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: And we value your good taste. Yeah.
0: Keep an ear out on the network for further podcast appearances by Cindy and I. I will continue to cover Superman 3 with Rob Kelly on Superman Movie Minute. Cindy and I will be back to Jail Ucast early in 2022, but I'm sure we'll have a few surprise appearances here and there in between.
1: Oh, there you go.
0: We hope everyone has a safe and happy Halloween. Enjoy it, but please be smart about it so we can finally pull out of this pandemic and get back to the old normal. Hopefully the only masks we'll have to worry about next year are Halloween masks. So take care, and again, happy Halloween, guys. Bye. Happy Halloween. Bye.
4: Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide. He is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue <laughs> my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FW Podcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I know you are there, Freddie.
5: You think you was going to get away from me I know you too well now, Freddy
4: No, you die It's too late, Krueger.
5: I know the secret now This is just a dream You're not alive This whole thing is just a dream I want my mother and friend again. What I take back every bit of energy I gave you. You're nothing. You're shit. <laughs>